Welcome to Just Curious Media. This is Let's Talk Movies, and I'm Jason Connell. On the show today, I'm joined by a special guest, Brian Beasley. Hey, Jason. How you doing, boss? Doing good, man. You're a repeat guest, and I'm so excited to have you back. Man, well, I'm excited to be back. When you pitched me Risky Business, which was the podcast I was on last time, I was like, man, when you do Die Hard, please bring me back. And uh, so I've been uh, on cloud nine all week, uh, excited to come back and talk about the greatest Christmas movie of all time, (laughs) Die Hard. Yes, Brian, you were pitching me Die Hard before we recorded Risky Business, for sure. Pitching it hard. Pitching it hard. hard. And it just so happened, this is season one of Let's Talk Movies, and it's 10 different movies from the 80s, each a different year, and I needed a movie for 1988, and it just so happened that I wanted it to be Die Hard. Tis the season, Brian. 100%. (laughs) So, the movie today is Die Hard, 1988's action-packed, super fun movie. Never stop thinking about it. I mean, honestly, it's the it's one of the greatest films of all time. It really is. And I, had, <laughs> I talked to another friend of mine this week who went to film school, and he was like, oh yeah, they preached that in film school. And I was like, you know, I wonder that's where Brian got the love for it from your time at NYU. Did you learn a lot about it there? I, it definitely was like, you know, it was only a few years old by the time I went to, to NYU film school. And uh, it, it was, we, anyone who wanted to make action movies, we were all just trying to make the next Die Hard. I mean, I literally <laughs> made, uh, I actually had forgotten about this. I made a film called Dorm Hard See? at NYU, <laughs> which is just for whatever reason, terrorists wanted to take over a college dorm and uh, the main character who is wearing a wife beater and the whole thing. I would completely forgotten about that actually. Brian, so where yeah, can um, we see that movie. Dorm Hard is definitely on YouTube somewhere. So Dorm Hard. It's a deep search you're going to have to find. All right, I, think, all right. I think it's got 31 views, but enjoy. I cannot wait. Well, this Die Hard was re- <laughs> directed by John <laughs> McTiernan, and it was written by Roderick Thorpe. He wrote the novel, and the screenplay was written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. De Souza. And we'll get into them more later. This is kind of our pattern here. We're going to bang out the credits and some of this stuff, and then we'll get into the crew before we get into the beats of the movie, play-by-play, scene-by-scene, extensive breakdown. This is what we do on Let's Talk Movies, as you know. Deep dives. And the genre is action thriller. Pretty accurate, I'd say. Action thriller, indeed. You could throw a little comedy in there, but comedy relief happens in big doses here, for sure. And the ratings, I'll let you guess the ratings, Brian. The IMDb rating. Go (laughs) ahead. Do you know it? Oh, gosh. Because it's an action film, I'm going to go a little lower than... I mean, it was a 10 for me, but I'm going (laughs) to say it's like a 7.5. 8.2. Okay. Pretty pretty good. It's nice. Well, IMDb, as you know, it's tougher grade, tougher scale. So that is a good score indeed. Now, Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think? Um, I'll I'll stick with my 7.5. 94%. Oh, I love it. Yes. Good job, everybody. Yes. High five to the world. Yes. Uh, the movie came out July 20th, 1988. And Brian, I'm happy to say I saw it in the theater as soon as it came out. I did too. Uh, 88. How old were you in 88? In 88, I would have been 17. Yeah, I think I was uh, I think I was 14. Uh, so a little too young to be seeing a radar R movie. Um, and actually we were, this came out in the summer, right? Did it, yes. It was summer yeah, July. Film, right? Yeah. 
And uh, I, we were actually on vacation in Crested Butte that summer, and my parents dropped me and my younger brothers to go see Big Top Pee Wee. Oh, yeah. The classic sequel to <laughs> Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, which was absolutely horrible. But it's only that movie was only 80 minutes long, and my parents had gone in to see this movie Die Hard, oh. knew nothing about it. Me and my brothers sneak in. It's right <laughs> in the scene where uh, the LAPD has their RV, as we will get into. Mm-hmm. And me and my brothers watched the whole movie from that point on, and we made our parents take us back the next night and watch the whole movie. Because we were like, we don't understand what's going on. We love this. This is amazing. Wow. Uh, so it, it obviously made a big impression on me and my two younger brothers. Yeah. And they went and saw, your parents went and saw Big Top Pee Wee just because they didn't want to see Die Hard again. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think they no. saw it again. No, no. One, no one was going back to see Big no, Top not, Pee Wee. No, not a lot of good talk uh, about Big Top Pee Wee in the <laughs> drive home. When are we doing the podcast on Big Top Pee Wee? Yeah, huh? well, that's a different <laughs> podcast Never. altogether. It's a different show. Really quickly, I have to correct myself. Since this came out July 20th, 1988, I was still 16. I would turn... Oh, there you go. I would turn 17 on July 31st. Now, I think I saw this literally that first week. Now, that's assuming Tulsa had it that week. So I'd have to go back to my ticket stub, which I have a pretty healthy collection of old ticket stubs to really see when I saw it, because I could have saw it in August 1st or 2nd. But anyway, just to clear things up there. But uh, yeah, never stopped thinking about it. Was in the theater. You know, when you're in the theater and you're you're smiling, like ear to ear, like this is incredible. And you're even talking to your friends. I was there on a date, actually. It's like, this is unbelievable. You know, those moments when you have that, like I had that yeah. most recently when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when we could still see movies in the theater. It's like, this is an experience. This is incredible. And I had it with Die Hard for sure. Once Alan Rickman really kind of hits his stride as the bad guy, oh. I was like, oh, we're seeing something. This is a different kind of action movie. Right. Like we're seeing something different. Like something special. They're playing chess against each other. And most of the times when you go see an action movie, they're playing tic-tac-toe. So Yeah, that's true. And now the budget for the movie, you want to take a shot at this? I bet it, it had a budget. Um, yeah. $60 million? Now, this is 1987 when they made it. So cut that in half. $28 million, So in that range. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's all on screen. I mean, they freaking blew up a building. <laughs> yeah. Some of it was a model, but yeah. Real helicopters. It's all practical. Half the stuff's practical. True. So the U.S. gross, which is not worldwide, and who knows how outdated this number is in IMDb with all the revenue streams and everything else, but it grossed almost $84 million. So if you can do that kind of return on investment... There's a reason why this thing spawns so many sequels, and it's still alive today. In fact, there's even the Die Hard battery commercials running today. That's right. So what does that tell you about a movie that came out in 88? This thing has staying power. Bruce Willis is still getting paid. Yes. So the cast for this movie, as we've already talked about, the main guy is Bruce Willis. He plays John McClane. Star-making role. Star-making role. I mean, he was doing Moonlighting. That was his launch, really, TV show, if you don't know about it. And then he would go on to do so many movies. I mean, all the diehards. Die Hard 2, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, A Good Day to Die Hard. And (laughs) yes, it just goes on and on. And then, of course, he did Pulp Fiction, The Sixth Sense, and so many other movies that you've seen him in. He's been nominated for four Golden Globes, and he actually won one for Moonlighting in 1987. I didn't know that, huh? And then we have Bonnie Bedelia. She plays Holly Gennaro McLean. More on that later. She was also in Die Hard 2 and Presumed Innocent. Then we have Reginald Voljansson. 
who plays Sergeant Al Powell, and you recognize him right away from Family Matters. You bet. Him and Urkel going. Yes, they were going head to head always. He's the father you always wanted to have. He's a great actor. And he was also on Mike and Molly, had a big run on that show as well. So really a TV actor who'd pop up in movies here and there. And a wonderful choice for this movie. More about that later as well. And that leads me to the last one I'll cover now. And then we'll talk about the other actors as they come up in the movie. But this is none other than the late and great actor, Alan Rickman. In his first movie, yeah. His first movie, which is hard to believe. He was 41 years old, gets this role of a lifetime. And that role is none other than Hans Gruber. Probably one of the greatest bad men ever. 100%. Brilliant. He's calm, cool, collected, charismatic, so villainous. But you almost just loved him anyway, which is hard to pull off. And he's also in movies like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Galaxy Quest, which is a movie that I think is fabulous and a lot of fun. Love Actually, and like so many Harry Potter movies. All the Harry Potter movies, yep. Matter of fact, he, he was like a massive twist on this character. I have never seen the Harry Potter movies, which oh. is uh, something waiting for me uh, someday. And he also won a Golden Globe for Rasputin in 1997. So a little bit more on the crew. Of course, John McTiernan, who we talked about a minute ago. But he directed movies, Brian, like Predator, Hunt for Red October, The Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, this is a first-rate director. Yeah, he is an action director to the T. He got all those in a row. He did uh, yeah. Predator one year, then the next year he does Die Hard, and then two years later he does Hunt for Red October. And those, all three of those movies completely hold up today. Oh, like my they're, gosh. They're class A action thrillers. Really well done, all three of them. Yes, they all have high repeat viewability. I'll watch Predator anytime, and I even reference it in this podcast, just wait. And The Hunt for October <laughs> is just Connery versus Baldwin. So, so good. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's he's excellent at staging action, but also being able to let the story unfold and, and not letting the action get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Uh, you can't have a great movie like this without good producing. And he had Joel Silver, producer, did so many movies. I, I would take a whole podcast to cover his filmography, but to name a few, The Matrix Trilogy, all the Lethal Weapon movies, and anything else in between. He was 80s action for sure. Super 80s. Anything, his name's on it. Anything from the 80s. And then there was Lawrence Gordon, who's also incredibly prolific, who produced uh, Watchmen, Lockup, Predator as well. So he worked with McTiernan on that, and uh, also his credentials go on and on and on. Some of these old school producers, it's like they just did everything in Hollywood. Like, yeah, I got it. I'm on it. And uh, wow, amazing. And back to the writers, because I want to give them their nod as writers sometimes are overlooked. But Jeb Stewart also wrote The Fugitive, Lock Up, Another 48 Hours, uh, all great, fun films and high action as well. Good character pieces. And then there's Stephen E. De Souza. He wrote the original 48 Hours and then Commando, The Running Man, Die Hard 2. So these guys, just like the producers, really covered so many movies in that, in that genre, uh, in that era. And they crush it. You know, Jeb comes in, he lays the groundwork from getting it from the book to, you know, the screen. And then He's actually let go, and Stevens brought in to kind of do yeah. the comedy polish. Yes, pretty much all the all the great funny lines 
were, were written by D'Souza. Yeah, no, I read that and I saw that on that documentary as well. It's so true. He They brought him in to punch it up because it had a great script, but it was missing the jokes. And I'm telling you, Die Hard has them. And sometimes it's from an obscure character. They'll deliver these great jokes. You're totally right. Like every time uh, we kind of like a character kind of falls to the wayside, a new character comes into the <laughs> forefront and they're just dropping hilarious lines or doing like j- just stupid enough stuff that that is still believable. But you're like, oh my God, that guy's a total jackass. And that's what that's what's so fun about this is you yes. never, it's, it's, you know, we meet Argyle, the limo driver up front, but then he moves to the side and then in comes, you know, the next clown that you get to laugh at. And they, it, it, the, the, the comedy is just as action packed as the action itself. Yeah. Totally. There's so many moving parts in this movie, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I really hadn't, and it was great to go back and revisit it. And of course, for this podcast, we really cover it. And I thought, wow, yeah, it's like a Robert Altman movie. There's so many guys going on, and you, they go on the fringe, and then they come back in, and oh, I forgot, I didn't like that guy. And Ellis comes back, whatever. It was an, and we'll get into it, but it is an amazing uh, piece. It's well orchestrated. The Altman comparison, that's actually really good, Jason. Yeah, I, I, I never thought of it like that, but you're completely right. Um, and they're all, even though we're only getting bits and pieces of some of these characters, they're actually really well drawn. Mm-hmm. And, um, some of these actors we haven't actually really seen again, right. but, uh, no one was weak. Like, no, <laughs> like, uh, no. you know, even the guy in the, uh, who comes out of the manhole at one point, yes. he's I, like, I get shut into it him. Down, shut it down now. <laughs> totally. like, I, you love it. He's great. And I get into that guy cause I recognized him immediately. Yes. Uh, so true. Well said. I'm glad you gave him a, a shout out. That's great. Um, and then quickly, the last few on the um, crew list. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Jen DeBont, the cinematographer. Oh my gosh, this guy. Talk about action. Yeah, who later became a director. He DP'd movies like The Hunt for Red October, so he also worked with Matiran, Flatliners, Basic Instinct, and then he directed Speed and Twister, shot in our home state. And uh, incredible. I mean, this guy knows action and knows how to capture it. So, I mean, this is a murderer's row of crew. I mean, are you kidding yeah, When me? it comes to action, 80s stuff, it is murderer's row. And going back to Jean Dupont, like you were saying, like his first movie was Speed and Speed is basically Die Hard on a bus. Yes. Like, yes. He knew, he uh, he didn't get outside his comfort zone one bit. He's like, this works. Let's just do this. Totally. In fact, I read that he was stuck in an elevator while making this movie and then had the idea to use that in the opening of Speed. So how great is that? If you haven't seen Speed, uh, watch it. It's fun. It holds up as well. Um, and then the editors, because, you know, you and I both done our fair share of editing. So we got to give a shout out. Listen to these guys' credits. You have John F. Link. He did other movies such as Predator, Commando, Roadhouse. And he was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, Die Hard. Amazing. And he shared that nomination with Frank J. Urosta. He did other movies such as Total Recall, Basic Instinct with John DuPont doing the DP work there, RoboCop and Roadhouse. So he worked with Link on Roadhouse as well. And like I said, they shared the nomination. Didn't win, but hey, they deserved it. And there was other Oscar nominations just for the categories I'll mention. Best Sound, Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing, and Best Effects Visual Effects, which there's a ton in this movie. 
Yeah, there really is. I mean, the all the way down the board, like you said, these guys are uh, top of their game. I mean, it's uh, the soundscape that they put together is on this is pretty amazing. And you know, even the editing, like some people would be like, "Oh, the, it must be. It's probably pretty easy. It's just oh. you know, guys shooting guns." Like, I mean, they're in the stairways, they're in the elevator shafts, uh, and if you pay attention, you can. They're exactly where they need to be. The characters are exactly where they need to be, and it's it, 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 the the building has a three D element to it. Yes. Bruce Willis, it's easy to overlook the performance, but he's amazing in this movie. He's amazing. He really is. He's funny. He's because this whole film is, it's not the macho hero. It's no. not Arnold Schwarzenegger coming into the Christmas party. He's the anti hero. He doesn't even want to do it. He, no. As a matter of fact, the first 30 minutes of the movie after the terror shows up, all he's trying to do is call the police. Yeah. He's just trying to call backup. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, when the police do get there, he he's like, you know, they tell him like, hey, take a break. He's like, they're all yours. Yeah. They're all yours. But they're incompetent. So yeah. <laughs> John McClane has to step up and kick ass. Well, Brian, he doesn't even want to be in California. He'd rather just be in New York. He's just pissed that he's even here. So yeah, he's the, 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 he's he's a fish out of water, hundred percent. Totally. So yeah, another device. This movie has like device on top of device on top of device, but they all work. So here we go, beat by beat, scene by scene through the movie. All right. So we start with a plane landing at LAX, and we meet John McClane. Although we don't learn his name yet. And Brian, what else do we know about him right away? He does not like flying. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> He's very uneasy flying. Yes. And uh, uh, his, his seatmate gives him a little grief, who's probably a, a well-seasoned uh, uh, business traveler, yep. and, and gives him a little hint on, on how to relax when he gets back to the hotel, yes. which we don't understand at the time is a huge device that uh, uh, we got to get McLean's shoes off. And this is, he tells him to make fists with his toes on the rug. McLean looks at him like, what are you talking about? He's like, trust me. Take your shoes off and make fists with your toes. It'll calm you down. Absolutely. And he does do that. And that does lead us to him being barefoot for uh, most of the movie. But I digress. Uh, We also learn that he's a cop for 11 years in New York. We learn that he's a father or a husband because he's got this stuffed bear with him. And he's got a flirtatious eye. The way he looked at the little stewardess or the flight attendant there, you could tell. John McClane likes uh, to look at the ladies. He's a handsome man. He's a handsome man. So now we cut to an office Christmas party at the Nakatomi building. And Ellis is hitting on Holly McLean, and she's calling home. We'll get into more in-depth on these people pretty soon, but we're just kind of doing the, the setups, if you will. And then on her desk, you see a kind of a photo, and you see in the photo... Home, Brian. We got the happy family. We got John McLean and uh, his wife, beautiful Holly Gennaro McLean, and little Lucy McLean, and and they have a boy too. I don't know. I can't remember what the son's name is. I we see it. him in the fourth film. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the one that goes crazy. That film, in my opinion, but that's for another show. And yeah, that's a great way to set up. We don't know his name yet, and then you see her, and then you see the photo, and I love that they just start piecing it together that way. It's nice, nice cutting, good editing, guys. Instead of the exposition, just show me those little beats and I'll figure it out. So I like that a lot. So now we're at LAX and there's a sign, J. McLean. Now, Brian, have you ever been picked up in an airport with your name on a I have not. Tag? Never? Uh, it sounds very VIP. It's so big got, time. Uh, <laughs> I had it happen once at a film festival and I thought, I have arrived. It's a big thing. <laughs> it really is a big, big baller moment, I got to tell you. So you had your own Argyle? I sure did, but a very different night for the both of us. 
So Argyle is there. Yes, Argyle, we meet our limo driver. And it's played by Devereaux White, who was on Head of the Class. He had a big run on that hit show, which I used to watch. So he plays a noisy, talkative limo driver. And used to be a cab driver, expects a little chit chat. Totally. He's asking McLean all sorts. I mean, a ton of questions, Brian. <laughs> you know, he's really yeah. inquisitive. And I that's how we're learning some of this exposition, though. What And what do we learn from it? We're learning that his marriage is on the rocks. Yep. Uh, he thought she was going to come out here uh, to California and, and fail. And it's quite the opposite. She's a huge success in California at uh, the Nakatomi Company, and uh, he's very begrudgingly come out for Christmas. He doesn't even know if he's going to stay yeah. uh, with with her at, at the house that they have with their kids. Um, so he's already kind of in a grumpy mood, and California itself just doesn't fit him. I mean, he, he is constantly saying, California. There's, yeah, yeah, I know. I <laughs> the know. pretty blonde at the airport jumping into her boyfriend's arms. And when he finally does get to the Christmas party, he gets he gets a little kiss from another yeah. uh, intoxicated gentleman. And he's just not having it. No. In fact, the song that comes on as he drops him off at the plaza is Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. Again, another hint to why this is a Christmas movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> In case you forgot. And then Argyle offers to do what? He's like, hey man, if it doesn't work out, uh, I'll I'll hit. I'm gonna go park this limo in the parking garage, and I'll be down there waiting for you. And if you need to, you need some help, we can go have a night, just the two of us, the two yeah. of us best friends. This guy's young; it's his first time out on the limo. He's got John McClane as a client. He's like, don't forget me about the tip. So he's gonna wait around and see if McClane strikes out with his wife, and he'll call him to let him know stay or go. Essentially. So great guy. You know, his, he's got one Good pound guy. California already, which is awesome. Now we're at the Nakatomi Plaza and McLean walks in. And I love this old school touchscreen directory. And, and McLean's was state of the art of the time, by the way. And McLean's like, cute toy. And of course, he looks up on screen. He can't find Holly McLean because she has got it under her maiden name of Gennaro. Yes, she sure does. Ouch! Yeah, and you know, it's a really good, they don't overstate it. Like, no. we see that he looks up McLean, and we don't, there's nothing there, so he pushes in the Jeep, and you see the disgust on his face, yep. but it's not like he's sitting there telling the security guard, she's using my maid. They don't over-explain it. Nope. It's just a little hint of, of the argument that's about to happen between the two of them. Yeah. Had he been in the limo longer, I'm sure our guy would have got it out of him. <laughs> he would have sucked it out of him, yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> So, and he says that she's on the 30th floor, uh, the party, they're the only ones left in the building. So, you know, a little thing like that, like, okay, so the building's empty except for that party. Yeah, you're totally right. He also kind of off the cuff mentioned something about the building's new yeah. and there's lots of little bugs. Yeah, and totally. Like, you know, it's good. And when you watch it later, and you're like, oh, there, it's all right there. It's right in front of me. And this is a swanky affair as he gets to the party. I mean, they have an orchestra. It looks like to me like 100 plus people, but later the count is much lower because they probably couldn't afford to keep this many people as hostages. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it was a big time affair. And then as you just said, I love how this stranger comes up and kisses McLean, which is <laughs> so <laughs> funny. And what does he say, Brian? California. Fucking California. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, this random stranger, he had a few too many drinks at the old Christmas party, and he comes up and kisses a stranger. Once again, he's a handsome man. It's his own fault. It's true. He is. <laughs> so now we meet Joe Takagi, and you probably recognized him from tons of movies, but his real name is James Shigata. 
rest in peace. He was on shows like Simon and Simon and Beverly Hills 90210. And he's really great in this movie. He's a big wig at the company and, you know, he's in charge. He's Holly's boss. And so he's throwing this big shindig and they meet for the first time, which is kind of nice because you can kind of tell that they've heard of John McClane, but they've never met John McClane. Matter of fact, Takagi comes up to him and is like, oh, you're John McClane. Like we know they, they were expecting him. Um, and there was probably a whole thing because they they almost in a weird way roll out the red carpet for him, showing him her office. Yes. Um, I, I think that they probably, you know, Holly's probably had some candid discussions that her husband's not too high on her working for this company. And they're like, we need her at this company. Yeah. So yes. let's try to uh, woo him a little bit. Yeah, that's well said, Brian. That's exactly the sense I got too, especially from Joe. Ellis, different story. And speaking of Ellis, who's like the biggest douchebag in this movie, he is played by Hart Bochner, who's really good at these types of roles in general. And uh, I remember him from Supergirl and one of my favorite movies growing up, Breaking Away, an incredible coming of age movie. Do check it out, please. It also has Dennis Quaid in his first movie. But uh, and he also plays a jerk in that movie, so he really nails it good. But I love how he's doing blow on Holly's desk as uh, they walk in. And Takagi's like, yeah, it's it's Holly's husband, Holly's policeman, yeah. husband. And McLean's on it in a heartbeat. He's like, you missed something there, buddy, because he's trying to clean up. But you know, he's the smartest guy in the room. He can size people up in two seconds. He's a New York cop. Yep. Come on. But yeah, pretty funny. And then they go on to talk about the building still under construction and. So now we learn that uh, Tagagi likes to tell jokes, Brian. He's a funny man. Yeah, he's busting some Pearl Harbor jokes out. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you know that you know you forget that in the eighties there was a bit of a xenophobia <laughs> thing against Japan. Like, yes, there was like because they'd come in and they were. I, I remember they were buying up Diamond Head in Hawaii and buying up yep. Manhattan property. And so yeah, he has, he delivers this and very like off the cuff, just uh, under the radar a little bit. It's like we Pearl Harbor didn't work out. So we got you a tape deck. Yeah. And it also is, it's a little bit of a time capsule of, of, of what people thought of Japan uh, back in the eighties, which is kind of, I guess what we would think of, of the Chinese now. Yeah. Yeah. So then Holly enters the room and changes the dynamic a little bit. And what goes on now? She sees him. She's like, oh, I'm so glad you made the flight. And she kind of, you know, very slowly comes across the room like, are we embracing? And they kind of kiss (laughs) on the cheek. And then, of course, Slimeball Ellis is like, oh, you know, we gave her a watch, you know, for Christmas, basically, (laughs) and, you know, for all the good work. And he's like, oh, okay. And she's a little embarrassed to show it to him. I think there's, there's, there's different dynamics of like, She's obviously more successful than he is now. Um, and Ellis keeps pushing it. He's like, it's a Rolex. Yeah. And basically, McLean's like, I- I'll see it later. Like, you know, it- it's cool. But uh, that's a huge moment, actually. That watch comes into play uh, majorly. And there's also just, there's just a theme of like materialism that's going on here. You know what I'm saying? That these people are working into the wee hours of Christmas Eve. Um, there's the blue collar and the elite. There's a lot of different uh, levels going on here. And it kind of all merges at this, at this Christmas party. And this is even before the terrorists show up. Yeah. Ellis can afford blow, Brian. So, that's, you know, he's in a whole other category. Right. He's in a different tax bracket, this guy. That's right. So McLean goes to wash up and Holly joins him. He's like in an executive bathroom or something. Very nice. And of course, they don't really see eye to eye right now in this particular moment. They don't even live together. So they begin to argue. Yeah. And it's an argument they've had for 
the months that she's been out there and the months before she left when she probably got the gig. She says it herself, like we, we never, you know, we never finished this talking about this. We never finished having this argument. And of course he throws the whole name change thing in there. And she says something about it's a Japanese company and they think a married woman. Yeah. He's like, you are a married woman. You're married to me. And it's like, you, you didn't miss my name unless you were signing checks. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, uh, and a matter of fact, who knows where this argument would have ended, but yeah, well, it's going very Kramer versus Kramer here. I'm literally concerned what kind of movie this is going to be, but then it shifts immediately because we see a Pacific courier moving truck cruising down the street and, uh, Avenue of the stars, most likely that street. And there's a Mercedes and they all arrive at Nakatomi Plaza. Then what happens? Then basically we uh, we see our first two bad guys. We get Theo and Carl. Theo is, we will soon find out, is the African-American uh, tech genius. Yes. And Carl is the man of very few words, but is basically the ruthless right-hand man to Hans Gruber. And uh, what I, again, going back to what we were talking about, the comedy aspects, like uh, we've, we've lost Argyle to the parking garage. In walks Theo, and he's basically, he's talking about magic and the Lakers and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the security guard's kind of like disoriented of like what's going on. And Carl comes up and puts two bullets in the guy's yeah. chest. And without missing a beat, Theo goes, boom, two points. And you're just like, oh, this is another another character. Yeah. And uh, Theo's immediately behind the desk ripping out uh, cords and cutting the communications yeah. and, the, and the alarms and blah, blah, blah. And Carl makes his way to the back and takes out the other security guard. And uh, they are on the way. The terrorists have arrived. Yeah. And Carl is so well cast. He's played by Alexander Gudinov. Rest in peace. Yes, another RIP. Yeah, famous uh, Russian ballerina. Very, very much. I saw some video of him. Incredible. This guy is huge. He's over six feet. Looks the part. He's got the long flowing locks, and he just looks strong and tough. And he has the great accent. And he was in movies like Witness and The Money Pit, among others. And then Theo, who we just talked about as well, Clarence Gilliard Jr. He played Sundown in Top Gun. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't put that together. Oh, yeah. Tom Cruise let him have it in one particular scene when he told him to engage, but Maverick was uh, a little distraught. And then he was also in The Karate Kid Part 2. Oh, Which nice. I've actually yeah. covered on the Let's Talk Cobra Kai podcast. We've done a deep dive into the sequel and all of the movies, to be exact. But he plays GI number one at the bar, <laughs> and he tries to hit through the panes of ice in which Danielson does a few moments later. So shout out to Clarence. Well, he's hilarious. There's not a scene that he's not in where he's not being like a smart aleck or yeah. uh, throwing things in people's faces. And he's, he's always funny. Yeah, he's great and brilliant. So it, it, really good character. And I love how Carl uses the hockey puck explosive right away on the second security guard. And I got to say, Brian, Probably didn't need to use it. That security guard was just loafing around looking at the elevator. He could have walked around the corner and blasted him, but they wanted to show us that these guys have some cool toys. Yes, they're tech savvy and they are completely prepared. Well, we, that, I mean, that's basically what we see is they, before they even get to the party, this thing has been planned out to a T. They know exactly how many security guards are. They know exactly where all the communication tech is, what wires to cut, how to get into the garage, how to get into the elevators. They know it all. They're anticipating FBI's next move. That's how good they are. I mean, that's how their plan is basically hinging yeah. on the FBI showing up. If it wasn't for that John McClane, 
<laughs> I could have I got away with it. The fly in the ointment. Uh, all right. So now the back of the truck opens and the team exits. And Brian and I do not see a ambulance in the back of the truck, but I do see a team. <laughs> It's by far the biggest goof <laughs> in the entire movie. That's all right. That's all right. And Jason, do you know why there's not an ambulance in the back of that truck? I don't think it was written yet. Because they hadn't written the ending when they started shooting. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine well, shooting? Well, Jaws the- is the same way. What is this? Well, what am I going to do today? Well, I mean, I wrote this last night. Carl, what did you come up with? So <laughs> this is how it works, Brian, on some of these classic movies. Like, oh yeah, we got ourselves in a corner. We got to get ourselves out of it. So yeah. I don't even care about it. The crew comes out and they look menacing. And they, they, and they have a leader. We don't know their names yet. When I watch this for notes, I think back to not knowing anything. What do I know as an audience member? And I'm just trying to learn as I go. So we just see them coming out, and then we see Theo shutting the building down. Yep, locking it up. And as you mentioned, these guys, very methodical. There's nothing they haven't thought about. But now we cut to McLean, and he's doing the trick. Fists with your toes. Yes. And it's working. Seems to be working. It is where he he actually says, damn, who would have... (laughs) Who would have thought? That guy I can was remember right. watching that as a 14-year-old going like, what is this? Is yeah. this something that adults do? <laughs> yeah. And as an adult, I don't even totally understand it. But just some, some weird thing that some guy told them to do on the plane. But again, it's all about getting John McClane barefoot. I'm doing this right now, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell how relaxed yeah, you are. I'm so calm and peace with myself <laughs> and this podcast. So now Carl knocks out the phone lines with a chainsaw, nearly kills his brother doing so. I mean, this guy, Carl, man, this guy is one big, scary guy. And it also shows that he has a somewhat of a playful side that he's messing with his brother the way he is. Yeah. And so now the rest of the team is doing what? So then, uh, yeah, they all kind of take their positions. And again, no one's no one's barking out orders. This was all planned. You got the Huey Lewis terrorists. I have that written down. Does he not look like Huey Lewis? <laughs> he's totally Huey Lewis. Oh, my god! Puts gosh. on the, the, the security outfit, and he's sitting up front making sure that uh, everything looks proper. Yep. And then the rest of them jump in the elevator and, and head up to the Christmas party. Up to the 30th floor. They're headed. And so McLean is calling Argyle just to let him know. Probably going to tell him, hey, it's all good. We're good. Head on home, buddy. I'll I'll send you a tip. Tell me where to Venmo you or PayPal or whatever we do in the 80s. And what happens, Brian? Uh, They get cut off. And then boom. Guns blazing. Guns a blazing. And so chaos ensues. And Brian, we see in this movie some nudity. Live nudity. Oh, that's... (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. They start, uh, some of the terrorists, uh, they're kind of gathering all the, all the hostages in the main lobby room. And so they're going office to office and we know that John McClane is in the last office yeah. doing fists with his toes, but they break into one of the earlier offices and it looks like two of the, um, uh, two of the employees got a little uh, touchy feely and we're having some good times. This is probably a Joel Silver classic. Like if there's not a girl running around topless for five seconds, but it does serve a purpose because it, uh, uh, the one, the the lead terrorist going down the hallway turns around and like gives a look 
which gives McLean a just enough time to get out of the office and down the stairwell. So he would have been caught if those if that girl had had her bra on. Just letting you know. Yeah, no, it's great. I just hope both of them are not married to someone else. I just hope it's a very... <laughs> they got uh, bigger problems. It's very true. They have much bigger problems now. So there's that. But yeah, that moment, that beat saved him for sure. He sees an exit strategy and he's up the stairwell. And he is still barefoot. He is barefoot. That's correct. So he finds a phone on floor 31, which is also dead. But Brian, he spots a woman off in another building. And he's saying, think, think. And I thought he might try to get her attention. It was just like a woman, that little silhouette. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that insert shot of her on the phone. I mean, what it comes down to is just that's what he needs to do. He's got to figure out a way to communicate outside of the building because the phone lines have been cut. Yeah. I thought he might shoot something out or do something, but it was almost like there's, I was, I can remember when I saw the first hundred times, (laughs) I was always like, yeah, it's like, what was that? Like, is he going to, yeah. Like he's going to wave over to her or like you said, yeah. Try to shoot something across to the, the way to her. I wouldn't doubt for a second that there's more footage and it just didn't work. And they just cut. Because it felt like really like a hard cut. Like, oh, okay. I thought we were exploring this for another moment. But whatever. It's a good cut. And we're out. We probably didn't need to explore that. Um, so now we see the leader of the group, one Hans Gruber. Great name. He's reading from a Bible, or so it appears. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, due to Nakatomi's corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. He is like speaking to the flock here. He is. He is. Like, again, that was planned. He had that written down. Oh, yeah. He was was in it. Basically, it's like we're not messing around. And they have to project this aspect that they are terrorists. And so terrorists don't show up to steal money out of a vault. Terrorists show up to cause terror because there is a political agenda that they have to get across. So all of those hostages, if any of them were going to survive, they would be able to say, oh, he was preaching from the get-go that uh, the greedy Japanese company had to pay with their lives. Yep. And so this leads us to what? Oh, he has this great scene where he walks around all throughout the hostages, uh, listing the resume, the LinkedIn profile, if yeah. you will. An impressive Joseph one at that, I guess. Takagi, father of five, and uh, <laughs> no one is standing up. You see, no. <laughs> they glimpse Ellis. He's like, not me, not me. Holly grabs Joe's arm. It's like, don't go. She knows that he is most likely doomed if... Uh, he fesses up, but then that's, he's the leader. Like he is yeah. the head of, of the company and he knows that he might have to sacrifice himself to keep his uh, employees safe. And that's pretty much what he does. He stands up yep. and uh, they take him away. They usher him away. Well, you can see that Hans also walks up to other Japanese gentlemen of the proper age and kind of looks at him. And I thought, is there just not a photo on his dossier as well? There's there no image at all. That's a good question. Cause you're like, I mean, we've just said how prepared these guys yeah, are. Yeah. I mean, if he's the head of the American arm of this corporation, you would think that there would be not only photos of him, but like he's been interviewed totally. or he's been, can't they just get on YouTube? No. <laughs> can't they just Google him? Hans is like, no, trust me, I'll break them. I'll find him. There'll probably be several <laughs> Japanese men there, but I can do this. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, there's just an aspect of him trying to be menacing. Yeah, I no, it, it's a much better scene than them walking up to him. It was a great scene, but it just, you know, come on. Surely they know what he looked like. Um, and he's a man of principle and he'll probably just step up and say, it's me, but there was a photo of him somewhere. It also is a great technique for us to care about him. We don't know anything about him. And then when you end with the thing of father of five, you're just like, oh, this is a family man. Like, you know, he's worked his his life uh, to get to the point that he is. And and, uh, now now he has run into Hans Gruber, apparently. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked the same if when he met John, he just laid all this on him. I'm the father of five. It's like, dude, braggadocious, (laughs) this guy. No, it works way better in this situation because you're nervous for him and now you like him. Or you, you like him more. You care for him. Yes. And so now McLean is on floor 35, and he sees some bad guys with some guided missiles. So these guys, they are loading up for something, and he doesn't know what. He's running around just trying to get his bearings. He doesn't even have shoes on. That's a big thing. That's a big thing is like, it's it's also good for us, the audience, to get our bearings. Yeah. Like, we find out that there's one floor is all construction. One floor is like a computer lab. Uh, you know, we obviously know that the party is on the floor below him. Yeah. There's access to the roof. He has access to the elevator shafts. Like, um, this is all becomes important to where he is. The rest of the movie is all cat and mouse. Yeah. And it's all about where you can hide and where you can't hide. And then, you know, obviously there's the, the, the other floor where the conference room is and all the models. Which we're coming up to now. Yeah. And, and very impressive. So yeah, Hans and company take Takagi to his office. I guess it's his office, but... McLean's in the background lurking around, but we see these models and they are impressive. And Hans is impressed by them as well. So now we finally learn of Hans' plan. And and even before we get into the conference room, you know, that whole walk through the models and at that point, Takagi still thinks they're terrorists. He's like, is this what this is about, about our project in Indonesia? Yep. And, you know, Hans has already made a quip about how nice his suit is and that he has two of those same suits and that Arafat shops yep. there. And he even says it himself. He goes, you know, the fault of my uh, classical education. We immediately see that Hans is extraordinarily smart. You know what yep. I'm saying? This guy, this isn't a, a smash and grab. This thing was planned out to a T. Every person that is there underneath him, he probably handpicked for a reason. And we definitely see that they all have like their own little, um, jobs to do and they all know what they're doing. So, uh, of course, then they go into the conference room and basically he asks them for the, uh, his code for the first of seven locks that they had to get through, um, to open the safe. Takagi's completely confused. Like open the safe. I thought you guys were terrorists. And then of course, Hans to that says, who said we were terrorists? And that's when it's like, oh shit, these guys, these guys are that badass. Yeah. I'm impressed by them and their wherewithal because they are, they're 10 steps ahead, even this guy. And this guy seems super smart and he is. His track record, his LinkedIn resume, and they're another step (laughs) above him. And he's like, I I don't have that. That's in Japan. I only have so much here. But he's starting to sweat. He knows his life's probably on the line. It's not a good scene. No. And he's blown away because Hans, like you said, the plan is... We don't know the full plan, but we the idea of why they're there is for $640 million in bearer bonds. And do you know what a bearer bond is, Jason? Well, I believe that there's a lot of them in risky business. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there are a lot of bonds in risky business. A lot of bonds. Bearer bonds are, they actually don't use bearer bonds anymore. But the reason why is because 
whoever personally has them, the bearer of the bond, if you, if it's in your possession, it is yours. So there's no safety. There's, it's basically like it, it, it's a volume thing. So we actually see the bear bonds there for a hundred thousand dollars each. So instead of having briefcase after briefcase of a uh, hundred thousand dollar bills, you have one piece of paper that's worth a hundred thousand, but it's, it's no, it's just like currency. Like if I have it in my pocket, it belongs to me. Yeah. Very true. And, uh, uh, pretty impressive and a smart play. They didn't make it jewels or diamonds or just usual cash. I love that it was bear bonds. Yeah. And it, it sounds exotic. And also $640 million. This is 30, this is 40 years ago. That's, that's a, like a billion bucks. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Even then it's a lot of money. Yeah. And then Han says, because this is when you know the stakes are being raised. He doesn't know, like, how serious is this guy? I know I'm here. Surely they need me to get what they want. And Han says, so cool, calm, and collected. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. And then you know it's for real, Brian. Yeah, it's for real. And Takagi's not having it. He's he's a good captain. He's going down the ship. Now, also, I don't know if you noticed this. But you've got Theo right there on the computer, ready to punch in the code. Well, so he's running MS DOS, I believe, at the same time. Is that? Right? <laughs> I think you're right. But Carl is is sitting right there too, and they have they trade little pieces of dialogue that I don't know if you picked up on it. They have a bet on whether Tatagi is going to spill the beans. Theo and Carl. You're right. You're right. So they have a bet whether uh, Hans can actually get him to tell them the code. You soon find out that Theo was like, I told you so. And and the bet was for $1. Very trading places of them. Oh, very trading places. A good call. Uh, and they're still they're playful about things at other people's expense. 100%. Hans even gives them a look of like, come on, guys. Guys, seriously. So this leads to, unfortunately, Takagi's demise. He doesn't give up the code. <laughs> there wasn't a four. It was a bullet through his head. And at this point, John McClane has army crawled his way to outside of the door of the conference room. He sees Sakagi get uh, shot and uh, has to Im- immediately make haste and get out of there. And as he does so, he makes a little noise. And Carl comes running out with the guns looking for him. But he's, he's successfully locked himself into a closet, which Carl doesn't seem to mind when he actually jiggles the door. He's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Well, they also, they dismiss the noise. They dismiss the they noise. They do. They dismiss the noise as if no big deal. And uh, then we have some pretty important conversation between Theo and Hans where he's like, now you can break the code, right? You didn't just bring me along for my personality, so. <laughs> That's right. My charming personality. But the point from earlier would be Hans is for real. This is one cold-blooded killer. That's right. If nothing else, like all these guys. And any hostage is fair game. The, the bear bonds in the safe, if you get in his way, you were done for. Yeah. And so now McLean talks to himself and he's hoping that Argyle heard shots. Now, Brian, I'm sorry. They're on the 30th floor. He's in the parking garage playing some music. So he didn't hear shots. He didn't call the police. But uh, maybe he heard some of the constant gunshots. I'm not sure, but probably not. He's way in the bowels of this building. So I doubt it. And now the guys are on the roof and they're wiring explosives. And, you know, these teams, there's so many different groups and they're not all interacting because they are a team. They are a well-orchestrated team and they go right into business. And some guys' jobs is to wire explosives and other guys are to be fake security guards. But uh, so they're up there doing their job, open safes, you know, some guys are involved in the negotiations where others just, they just go to work. And I like that. They're not bitching about their job. They're just, they're doing it because a big payday awaits them all. 
So then Theo begins to share just how tricky this is, Brian. Yeah, they walk into the safe room and uh, yeah, he's he's like, there's seven locks. The first one is his code, which he's pretty confident he can break within 30 minutes. Um, he does. Yeah. It's Red Castle. Actually, it was something I picked up on this last viewing that I don't think I ever really noticed. And then he has like a like a super drill. They don't really get too technical, but basically he drills in there and he is able to unlock the other five locks. But he tells Hans... The seventh lock, it can't be undone from the building. It's a magnetic lock and there's nothing he can do about it. So, and apparently Hans is like, yep, we've talked about this. We understand it. And, uh, and then they have that great scene where they kind of like open the outer door of the safe and they show uh, on the floor before they pan up to show the gigantic like metal door of the safe. Yeah. They show the logo of Nakatomi Corporation. And it's a samurai helmet. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that was a samurai yeah, helmet. Yeah, it's a samurai helmet and there's like three dots. Yeah, that's a great logo. That's cool. Well, before we got into the Red Castle, which I want to get into, there's one scene before that, but McLean is saying, think, God damn it, think. And I love these shots, Brian. I love the way it's edited together. He looks up, sees a sprinkler head, looks down, there's a fire alarm. Then we cut to a panel showing floor 32 alarm. I love that kind of pacing. He's like, boom, boom. He's got the idea. He's already executed. He's going to alert the fire department, come yeah. to the building. It's brilliant. And Hans is alerted. But of course, Brian, like always, he's cool, calm, and collected and just gives instructions. So that's right. Just turn off the alarm, call number one, tell them that it was a false alarm. And they, they were ready for it. They're like, okay, so we missed one security guard. He put, you know, he pulled the fire alarm. So let's go find him. So they send Carl's brother up to go find him. Well, McLean sees the fire trucks like turn their sirens off and turn around. And then we feel his despair. It's like, he just can't do anything. He's got no phone, no anything. That was a great idea. Foiled. And then without missing a beat, you hear ding from the elevator. It's a moment later. It's yep. so great. And now it's hand-to-hand combat for old John McClane. Exactly. And he's crafty as we're learning. I love that they also decided to have an unfinished floor or two because it really adds to it. If it was just a bunch of cubicles, it just wouldn't be the same, Brian. I love that it's, you know, tarps and, and unfinished things. Yeah, dollies, masonry work. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the writer D'Souza, the, the second writer who came on, like he walked through the building, which was for real under construction. And they were just like, oh, we'll write that into the action. Well, we'll oh, there's some hammers over there. There's a, there's a saw. Let's put that in there. The chains hanging from the ceiling. Yep. Let's put that in the script. And it all works. And so speaking of saw, yeah, there's a DeWalt saw that he, McLean, fires up, you know, and then hides. Of course, that lures this guy in. And then what happens, Brian? And then basically he's got the the funny quip. The terrorist is like, oh, you're not going to hurt me. You're a policeman. And without missing a beat, he's like, that's what my captain keeps telling me. Yeah. <laughs> and, then they go, and then they go at it. Yeah. Yeah. The guns get thrown to the wayside and it's a death wrestle um, that basically uh, ends in, you know, they're breaking through walls and blah, blah, blah. And then it ends uh, falling down some stairs and uh, McLean holds on to break the guy's neck. Yeah. He breaks his neck. And even McLean took a hit in that. I mean, fall down a flight of stairs. I'm sorry. It's going to hurt. And these aren't padded steps. And the guy does break his neck. Now we cut to a photo of Takagi. And Brian, with that poor photo, no wonder they couldn't recognize him earlier. That photo on screen, <laughs> it, it didn't even look like him. So maybe that's what happened. Han's got all this bad intel. He's like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what this is. But on screen as well, you see that Tagagi means Red Castle, 
Or it also means red tree or red future. Mm. As far as Japanese translation, Red Castle works way cooler. Great yep. name. And of course, this guy's good. He cracks codes. And Theo is, you know, he's in and he's off and running. Past the first lock. So now McLean, due to this death that he caused, he has a walkie talkie, a Zippo lighter, and some pretty small shoes. <laughs> That's right. And a machine gun. But yeah, the shoes, that's important. You know, and this is, that's an important thing because like without the shoes, like that whole thing, like playing through, like anytime you kill someone, people be like, why isn't he just steal someone else's shoes? So I thought that was a great thing because in every movie, like, you know, Indiana Jones knocks out a Nazi and then puts on his uniform. You know, they did that too. It was like, it's a little tight in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. So I thought that was really funny. He's like, all oh, the terrorists in the world. And this one, the one I kill has feet smaller than my sister. And he had to say it because if you don't say it, we're all like, Hey man, what the heck? Totally great. And this guy, by the way, it's Carl's brother, as you said, but his name is Tony. Now, he gets Tony's California license, and it says his name is Richard G. Orenson, and he lives in Sherman Oaks. Is that right? I didn't ever... Oh, yeah. That. I actually <laughs> look at the address, too. It's pretty funny. And then there's reference later because McLean's like, they paid high money for these fake IDs. So, obviously, a fake name, fake license, and all that. But his name is Tony, and Carl later is really going to want to avenge his brother's death. So now McLean has a plan in motion with an elevator, Brian. Yeah, it's the it's the first of many times we're going to be jumping in and out of elevators and elevator shafts. But uh, he, yeah, he puts uh, poor Tony in an office chair. <laughs> poor Tony, <laughs> and uh, sends him down to the uh, to the party. And little do the terrorists know. John McClane is now, he's now Detective McClane because he is spying on them. Yes, he is. While he was gaining intel of, of the building, now he's gaining intel on the terrorist group, trying to figure out how many there are. So the elevator door opens. One of the hostages sees the dead body and screams and Hans and the rest of the terrorists come running and they find poor Tony. Um, and this is one of my favorite things. He has spray painted. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho on poor Tony's gray matching sweat sweatsuit, by the way, full gray top and bottom yeah. uh, sweat, sweatsuit. And John McClane is on top of the elevator listening to all of them. He can hear them speak in German. Yeah. He, uh, he starts writing down the other names of some of the other people. And uh, here's Hans literally say, well, someone tell Carl that his brother's dead. Yeah. Now, McLean has flipped the script. He is definitely on the hunt, or at least on the intel hunt. And yeah, but before he comes down, before Tony comes down in his uh, festive uh, getup, Hans is back with his parish, and he's eating and sharing. The hostages all know that their leader has been killed. So it's a different mood now. The stakes have been raised, but then here comes elevator doors, as you just said, and they all kind of get a glimpse at the body as well. But the only person happy there is probably Holly, because she knows that means John is taking care of business. That's right. Someone's kicking ass. And yes, McLean is on top of the elevator. And I like the way he's riding on his arm, like how many he seems. So he's like, you know, doing chicken scratch or whatever, like one, two, three, four, five, six, how many people he sees and the names of people. He's heard Carl's name. He's heard Han's name. So he's taking inventory. And it's really cool to see that he's got this uh, in his DNA as a cop. But I also love when he comes across the Playboy centerfolds on the wall, just randomly. Pretty funny because he notices it because he's got that flirtatious eye. Yeah. 
Well, he's a man. Yeah. And a good looking man, as you have pointed out. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice touch of set design because it could be, well, just one empty, unfinished floor after another. So to put those little touches, whether it be like a little Christmas tree, uh, there's, you know, (laughs) there's some Twinkies that'll come into play in a little later. And yes, the, the centerfold, uh, is been, has been hung up by, uh, one of the construction workers. And, uh, it's also a marker of just, it lets the audience know exactly where we are. Well said, because they circle back around later and it's like, oh, that's our crumbs. Now we know we've been here and oh, I know my way out. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a construction worker. This is not one of the employees of Holly's company on their desk. This is a definitely like, it's going to be there while they're working on said floor. And that's it. And then it'll move to the next floor or whatever. I mean, it's a little bit of a mascot for the working, for the uh, construction crew. And then it becomes a little bit of a mascot for John McClane as well. And he actually touches it. Like, hey, ladies. It says, yeah, it's like, it's like his lucky charm. So then Hans tells Carl that his brother's been killed. And Carl is not happy about this. He's making it personal now. So everyone's on the straight and narrow. They have an objective. But now Carl is like, okay, he's been tested a little bit. This is out of his comfort zone. He wants revenge. He wants blood. And we know that he's not going to think straight now. Exactly. Yeah. Because he's like throwing desks over. He's emotional. And we're like, okay, because Hans is so cool, calm, and collected. And uh, so he lets, what, he gives him a few minutes and they go and they try to hunt him, right? Yeah. And now McLean is on the roof and he calls for help. Yeah, so he's got his, his CB. He uh, calls the emergency channel, yep. and he cut to the 911 operators. He instantly goes up the ladder of command to the managers, uh, who's basically like, it's like, you can't be on this line, sir. This is an emergency line, and he delivers that. Then fine, come down here and arrest me. He's like, just send everybody. And no, no one's giving him any uh, the time of day until... The terrorists, once again, arrive in full force. Carl and his, and his posse, they light up that roof with, with gunfire. And before they arrive, I do love the line, no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Like, so good. Because he's really just like, come on. I am telling you where I'm at. Just come and get me. And they use the real address because a lot of times movies don't, but they really do. 2121 Avenue of the Stars, Los Angeles, California, 90213. That is it. That is actually the Fox Plaza. So that is really there, folks. If you're ever out in California, uh, check it out. And it's still standing. It was not blown up by McLean and company. And then when they do arrive, Brian, I got to say, this crew, Carl's little crew, this team, they look like a 90s glam rock band. Even my wife, when she was watching it, they're totally right. They get in the elevator and she goes, they're all really good looking. <laughs> Die Hard does fall into some of the usual trappings. And it is Euro trash bad guys. Like they all look like Fabio. They've all got long hair and beautiful faces. Yeah, I think they're going to start singing some Firehouse song or something, you know? <laughs> Baby! That's right. Don't treat me bad. Don't treat me bad. Anyway, so it's true. They light up the roof and they are all in pursuit of one crafty John McClane. And while they're lighting him up, though, the cop overhears a bullet, a gunshot, if you will. And she sends a black and white unit over, which then begins a whole other storyline, which is amazing for this movie. If you thought you had enough characters, nope, we're going to give you another one. And he's great. Sergeant Al Powell. And he's at the A&M, 
with a clerk who has a major attitude, Brian. I got to tell you. <laughs> That's right. giving him a lot of crap. He's a plumpy gentleman, and he seems to be buying one too many snacks. For his wife, who's pregnant, though, Brian. Yes, for his wife, who's pregnant. But the, the clerk isn't buying Not it. Not having He's it. like, sure. Not having it. And I like when he gets the call, you know, I was like, uh, okay, I'll be right over there. And he walks outside the AMPM, and I like the fact that he just walks over and gets a visual, a POV of the plaza from there. It's kind of neat. I don't remember seeing it yet, actually, until this point in time, from that perspective. Right. No, from far away like that, yeah. And it's also great because he kind of looks up on the roof, and you can see little, little things. white. But you think, oh, maybe that's something to tell planes that the building's there. But in reality, it's freaking machine guns. <laughs> and it's a great cut because we jump right back into the action. Yep, exactly. The shootout continues. And McLean even has to get through this massive fan, which we've seen before in movies, but this might have been one of the first times we've seen this. You know, those huge industrial fans, and he sets his gun to kind of squeeze through it just in time because he can't outshoot these guys. He's got one machine gun to their, what, three of them at this point in time? Yep. And this is when he passes the Playboys again. A little shout out to the Playboys. And Brian, I am not big on heights. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I am not. And this stunt coming up is absolutely crazy. Yeah, so he's he gets to that industrial fan, like you were saying, and then he's looking down the air shaft. So uh, he's trying to escape through the air shafts and basically has to like almost rappel down with the uh, strap of the machine gun to try to get to the next floor and get into their uh, air shaft. And actually, you know, the behind the scenes is that the stuntman was doing it. And he was supposed to leap from the strap that he's holding on and grab the uh, entrance to the to the floor down below him's uh, air shaft, and he missed it. Yep. And the editor was on set and was like, "That's awesome! Like, just give me a <laughs> shot from inside, two floors down of him catching himself." And that's what he does. So he actually he actually fell two floors when he was only supposed to fall one floor. And it's real. It's all practical. None of this is CGI. It's amazing. It's scary. Yeah, he's hoisting himself down with the strap of a machine gun that's not even made to hold you up. It's like, oh my God, too many things. It's too scary for me. But it <laughs> stunts great. And I did love to find that out as well. That was really cool. And now he's in the heating and cooling vent, I guess. Yep. And kind of crawling around and he's, you know, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. And he, yeah, some of the best lines. Yeah, yeah, he's just going on and, hey, come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. I mean, it's classic. It's, you know, it really is like, that's the moment I feel when he delivers that, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. He's, he's channeling the Bruce Willis Moonlight Oh, character, yeah. Which was just one liner after another. And it was so smart of them for D'Souza, the writer, to lean into that, to lean in to how charming Bruce Willis could be. Um, it's not, I'll be back. It's not these threatening lines. It's these self-deprecating, what the fuck am I doing in an air shaft? Motherfuckers. Like, I come out to LA and this, I'm being shot at by terrorists? What the fuck is this shit? Um, you know, all I'm trying to do is get the fucking police out of here to take care of this. And most of these funny lines, with the exception of some, of course, because he it was hilarious about the pizza delivery and some upcoming ones to Hans, but a lot of them are just to himself. Give, yeah. Giving yeah. us something. And, and it is great. And they did lean into it. They didn't do it too much. He's not cocky. He's just like, what the fuck have I got myself into? Yeah. He's a blue collar everyday man, which is why his character, that's why people love this movie. Because, yeah. I mean, you can kind of, I mean, you can't really relate. It's an absurd premise, but he is relatable. Yeah. It reminds me of Sheriff Martin Brody in Jaws. The last thing he wants to do is go sure. save the day and be on that damn boat. So, yeah. Anyway, so now Carl moves in 
And he is getting close, Brian. He's like tapping the vents and getting closer to where John might be hunkered down. And of course, he gets a call, say by the bell. That's right. Hans calls him, right? Yeah. While uh, McLean is, you know, talking to himself in the air shaft, <laughs> Carl's able to see him turn off his lighter so he knows exactly what floor he is on and where he's at. So they rush down there and he's uh, poking the the vents and you see and he gets really close and then he like puts a few bullets in there and they do that great rack focus from like the bullet hole smoke coming through to McLean's face. And he's like, oh, Jesus, that was like a foot away from my face. Um, but you're right. Hans calls him and is like, hey, he's locked in. We need you back down here. Like you're going to have to ignore this guy for a little bit because we've got We've got work to do, which was a mistake. Yep. And now Al pulls up to Nakatomi Plaza and it's a nice shot. I like this kind of a high POV of the black and white car pulling up. And I love that uh, McLean's looking at this going, who's driving his car? Stevie Wonder? <laughs> so, yeah. And do you remember Stevie Wonder jokes were a thing? Oh like, my that was a thing. God, it was 80s. a huge thing. Yeah. The whole time I'm watching, I'm like, my daughter won't even get that. Like, <laughs> she won't get that joke at all. And now we have our security guard, Huey Lewis, no less. Huey Lewis. And he lets him in. No side of the news, but definitely Huey Lewis here. And he lets him in, and there's a football game on. And this guy really sells it too, Brian. He does. I got 50 bucks on them assholes. Now, he mentions... Notre Dame versus USC, right? So I had to look this up. So it's supposed to be Christmas Eve. So I looked up this game. Did Notre Dame play USC on Christmas Eve? No, they played November 26th, 1988. Notre Dame was actually number one in the country. USC was number two in the country. And the game was at the Coliseum. So they're pretty close. Notre Dame went on to win 27 to 10. They actually were co-champions that year. But yeah, the security guard has money on it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back into the game, ignoring Al really coolly, acting like a security guard. Like, yeah, go ahead and look around, whatever. So Al's just kind of, you know, poking around, but he's he doesn't see anything astray. No, yeah, he walks down the hallway towards the elevators. And then uh, what you see in the widescreen version, oh. you can see there's a machine gun around, just around the corner. And if he hadn't, uh, he he basically says to himself, he's like, I'll oh, screw this, yeah. and I'll fuck this, and yeah, and heads back to his car. But if he'd made it around the bend, he would have been taken out. And what's funny is that I remember watching Die Hard on regular television on the three four format, and you didn't, you couldn't see the gun. So it's kind of a little thing. I mean, now all TVs are widescreen. So, but yeah, so he heads back out to his car, and John McClane has to do something to get his attention. Yeah, that's true. So John tries to break glass, which alerts the bad guys. Of course, they're always one step behind him. And then he has to kill one, takes him out, and then he kills a second, who's Marco, who had him pinned in. Like he was underneath one of the models, I believe, and he was coming for him. And like John's always just one step ahead of danger and kills a second. So as Al is back to his car, he's singing. Brian, do you remember the song he's singing? Uh, he's singing a Christmas song, isn't he? Yeah, Let It Snow. Let It Snow, which we'll, we'll hear in the credits. Yeah, exactly. So he's singing. I didn't put that together. He's doing that. I was like, you know, I came by. It's Christmas Eve. I got to get these Twinkies home to my pregnant wife. And then what happens? <laughs> So he gets back in his car and it's a great shot. It's from inside the car looking up through the through the windshield and you just see this out of focus body come right and it just lands right on his car. So basically he threw Marco, yep. who he had just killed in the conference room, out the window. And at this point, 
the terrorists are like, the police know, and they open a heavy, heavy dose of machine gunfire. And uh, yeah. Sergeant Al Powell throws that cruiser in reverse. And basically, as he says it himself with the radio, they're turning my car into Swiss cheese. <laughs> um, and he's able to kind of take it over a bank, which kind of protects him. And he <laughs> hops out of his car with a bit of a head injury. Yeah, that was quick thinking on his part, because had he not sped away, they were going to waste him. You're right. Oh, yeah. They were trying to kill him. He got very lucky. He's like, holy shit. I know too much. I've got to get the heck out of here. And we find out later that, you know, he's been a desk jockey for a while. So he had some old instincts kick in here and thought, oh, I got it. I got to move. And I also have to say that I hadn't really thought about this. That's one amazing throw by McLean of Marco. You know, <laughs> like, what? that is incredible throw. I just have to say, uh, well done. Because he could have like just completely missed and Aldis doesn't see it. From 30 floors. Yeah. 30 floors. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty impressive throw. Yeah. So now we have another great character in this movie. Reporter Richard Thornburg, played by- Thornburg. Thornburg. Played by William Atherton. And you definitely recognize him as a usually kind of a jerk, but real genius- so good in that movie and Ghostbusters, just to name a couple. He was the go-to uh, asshole oh, in the it, 80s. This, and this movie's got a couple of these go-to assholes, but this is one of them. I'll save the other one for a few minutes later. And he hears Al's alert. You know, this is before TMZ or whoever was scooping calls or that great movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, if you've seen that. They're just like listening and then they're on it to go film it and sell the footage. Well, he's one of these guys in the 80s, way ahead of his time. Listening to the scanner. Listening and he heads off because this is news. Now we know across town we have Notre Dame playing USC, which is crazy, but this is bigger news. So here we go. Now Hans is calm and of course he expects the police to come at some point. Yeah, he even says it. It's like- yeah part of the plan. The police had to be alerted. I think there's a thing of like, you know, it was maybe a little earlier than they were expecting or hoping for, but you know, they'll roll with it. Like you said, he's completely calm. And John McClane calls Hans. He actually, him and Hans are speaking. So kind of explain this exchange, Brian. Yeah. So uh, actually I think Al Powell kind of gets on the radio and is like, whoever used this emergency channel, if you can. So, uh, McLean starts talking to him and uh, kind of like, you know, it's like, here's it's this, it's that. And uh, Hans gets on there. This is when the chess match begins because it is cat and mouse between the two of them. Hans is, he's like, come on up. You know, the, the, the door's open. We love, we love to have you. And he's like, yeah, not going to happen. And basically he's antagonizing him. McCain is, is, uh, you know, making fun of him, talking about, he knows that they have the artillery. He just picked up the detonators off Marco. Um, he knows how many hostages they have. He's selling them everything. And basically he's the good cowboy and, uh, Hans is the bad guy. And they both, they both know their roles and they play them so well. And Hans is, you know, he makes fun. He's like, you think you're Rambo? You think you're another American cowboy? And this is where we get McLean delivering the famous line. He's like, I've always, always partial to Roy Rogers and gives him the old yippee ki motherfucker. There it is. <laughs> An incredible line that has withstood the test of time. 100%. Amazing line. And finally, for the first time, Brian, Hans looks a little concerned. Yeah. Because you know what wasn't part of his plan? A John McClane. John motherfucking McClane. Yep. And he says it himself. Like in that exchange, he goes, I'm just the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench. It's like, I'm here to fuck shit up. Dang it. 
We had no idea. He wasn't supposed to be at this party. Literally not supposed <laughs> to be at right. this party. Invited by mistake, he says. So now Thornburg at the network pleads for a truck. Let me go. I got to get this story. And then, Brian, there's a countdown to go live with Harvey Johnson and Gail Whalens. And it just made me think for a second, because on countdowns to go live, it's like four, three, two, and the one is silent, if I'm not mistaken, for news. And they said the one and they used their pinky. So I thought, oh, wow, hmm, interesting. Because that, yeah. that could bleed into the sound. But small thing. But I also want to point out that Gail Whalens looked really familiar to me. And the actress is Mary Ellen Trainer, rest in peace. And mm. she was in The Goonies and all yep, the Lethal the Weapon movies. Yeah, the mom and the Goonies. So immediately I recognized her and I looked her up. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know we lost her, but I want to give her a credit. But uh, cool scene. And so then Thornburg gets his van, his truck, I should say, and he's off to cover the story. He's off. The press. Han shares McLean has detonators. Now the team knows we've got to get one McLean. These detonators are essential. Yes. So now it's not only does Carl have a score to settle, but Hans needs his detonators. And we don't really know why they need the detonators. Yeah. We don't understand it. We don't know the plan. So yeah, McLean opens the package. It's all the detonators, but he also has one thing of C4. And he's like, oh, and once again, these guys have brought the shit. What's a C4 for? Yeah. And then Al talks to McLean and he begins to share. There's 30 plus hostages, automatic weapons, explosives. There's nine terrorists left. Uh, they're European. There's a Schwarzenegger reference and to call him Roy. So, and cigarettes. And Roy, it's a smart move. You know, Roy Rogers, not going to say his real name and out himself and they could research who he's related to or connected to. So yeah, he's a cop on a party line because everyone else is listening in, but they've got to kind of talk in code, but he laid out everything that he's seen. Then Al's probably like, holy cow, this is a big operation. Yeah, it, it's uh, and, and he's giving a lot of a lot of information to the cops and uh, very helpful, quite honestly. And it also just going to show you get to see how McLean, the cop, like how his mind works. And like, you know, like you had mentioned earlier about the fake IDs and that yeah. these guys are prepared and uh, they're organized um, and that they're not fucking around. And at this point, he still thinks they're terrorists. Totally. Now, Theo has disabled half of the locks, and the cops are beginning to assemble. And this includes one deputy chief of police, Dwayne T. Robinson. Dwayne T. Robinson. A great 80s asshole, this guy. Oh, my gosh. One of the greatest, played by Paul Gleason. Rest in peace. Incredible actor, and you know him well from movies like Trading Places and The Breakfast Club. Both first-rate assholes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> He's so good. He's so, to have both of these guys in this movie is an incredible feat. And they never even cross paths. <laughs> they know. No, they don't. The Dwayne T. Robinson and the Thornburg character, they're both, you know, just bureaucrats. They're getting in the way of anyone trying to get anything done, trying to protect these people. Oh, he has some lines. His stupidity is so funny. Yes. And he's chief of police. Well, L.A. has some issues, as we know. So this is not good. <laughs> So then Holly meets with Hans in her office because he's taken over shop, commandeered her office. And of course, you know, he grants her what? Yeah, well, she, you know, she basically comes in, starts negotiating that, hey, we, <laughs> we got a pregnant lady out here, needs a couch. We got, you better start taking us to the bathroom. And he goes, what idiot put you in charge? And without missing a beat, she goes, you did when you killed my boss. So, 
it again plays into what kind of an independent woman she is. Yep. She's not, I mean, listen, she's sparred with, with her husband, John McClain. And that's a, it's a strong woman if you're going to stand up to him. So she's used to powerful men, yeah. uh, probably um, underestimating her and uh, not giving her her due. And so she came in a guns a blazing with a bit of a soft touch. I'll give her that credit. But he acquiesces to her request and... You see a softer side of him for maybe one of the only times in this entire movie. So now there's a live remote with Richard Thornburg, who's setting up shop, covering the event, and Hans and Argyle, Argyle partying, by the way, in the limo by himself with the bear. And they're both watching He's opened the minibar. He's opened the minibar. The minibar is open for business. And they're both watching the news and seeing what's being covered. So that's kind of cool. In real time, we're seeing what's happening here. Yeah. And Argyle jumps into the front of the cab and basically turns on the, the CB and it can hear the the chatter of the LAPD as they, um, you know, form a perimeter. And he's like, what the fuck? Yeah, what have I done to myself? What kind of job is this? So Al argues with Robinson, this guy, with his crazy tactics. And Brian, what's he saying? Well, he's basically going off like, you know, what are we supposed to do about, you know, the Roy, the guy who gave us all the information. He's like, well, who is this guy? Maybe he's one of the terrorists jerking your chain. And uh, there's the great line, too. He's like, I think he's a cop. He was able to spot a fake ID. And yeah, <laughs> Robinson's is like, he could be a bartender for all we know. <laughs> he also says, yeah, but what about the body that dropped on my car? He's like, well, who knows? Probably some stockbroker that got depressed. <laughs> the heck? <laughs> Just completely dismissing it. <laughs> Again, it's it's kind of absurd, but it's also like within the moment, it's really well done. And because casting is so good, Gleason can deliver those lines with a total straight face, and it works. And and uh, what's so great is that, you know when you've got Al Powell kind of like as the straight man between the two, you know the two of them, Albert and Costello, it totally works for the whole movie. Oh my god, I keep thinking he's going to say, "I got you, Bender." Two weeks. I got you. I just keep waiting for something to come out like that, you know? You mess with the bull, you get the horns. It's just so good. He's so good. You're Like you said, casting's key. And for them to get these guys, the right guys, this movie went to another level. Completely. So now the cops head inside. You know, he's sending this team in, unbeknownst to them, what's inside for them. Because he's not trusting the insight from Roy, which we'll call him Roy in his eyes right now, because he thinks he could be in on it. So they want to yeah. go in, guns a-blazing, not really even understanding what is waiting for them. Yeah. He's, they send in the uh, the SWAT team, basically. Yeah. And again, going back to the funny writing, just wonderful little moments. And, you know, uh, kudos again to the director, McTiernan, for letting this happen, because none of it is macho. It is self-deprecating humor. But when that team approaches the front door, uh, the lead guy like they run through some plants and he gets stuck oh, with a horn. So funny. <laughs> and he goes, ah! Oh, yeah. like, these guys have tactical gear. That's when you know that they're completely outmanned. Wonderful little nod that these guys are about to get their asses kicked. And that's, that's what happens. That was really funny. And then Argyle attempts to leave to no avail. And Brian, at this point in time, 
right now, not in the future, but right now, I didn't really understand Argyle's role. Was he just the innocence of him or the humor? Now, I know it unfolds more later, but to this point in time, I was a little confused. I mean, he's definitely put on the backseat, right? Like Literally. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, we have to check in with him just so that we know he's still a player on the on the game board, but he, he has no use until the very, very end of the movie. And yeah, he drives around the parking garage. All the gates have been locked down. He's stuck in the building, as is John McClane. He has no role until the very end, honestly. Because I hadn't seen it in so long, I thought, does he call him more often? But no, there's a real big gap with him. They do do a good job of like, anytime John McClane delivers like a verbal punch to Hans, sometimes they'll cut to Argyle laughing because he's listening to everything. Absolutely, you're right. Because he's listening on the CB now. It's kind of a nice, you know, as a director, you know, like, oh, hey, let's just, without, he doesn't have to deliver any dialogue. He's just in there laughing like, oh, he just, you know, faced to Hans. Um, and you just kind of remember that he's down there. So Very true. Good point. So now the bad guys prepare for this SWAT team coming in. And Yuli, played by Al Leong, you've got to recognize this guy. He's in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He plays Genghis Khan. He's in Lethal Weapon. Yep. Another great action movie. And then he's in Big Trouble in Little China. Another fave of mine. So this guy pops up in some classic movies. And I like that he even describes a crunch bar. You know, just a little, just a little moment. You got some time to kill. I'm set up. It's in juxtaposition to the SWAT team getting stuck with a thorn. Yeah. And, and him so, as a terrorist, they're so relaxed. He's like, oh, hey, look, there's, there's a, there's a candy, there's a candy drawer here. I'm just going to take this. And they cut to Huey Lewis, who's on the other side. And he's like taking wax out of his ears. Like they're completely calm. The police serve no threat to them. These are the LA's finest that are coming up to try to take them out. Yeah, they're ready for them. And so what happens? So basically, yeah, Hans tells Theo, hey, leave the safe and get on the comms. And because uh, they've got cameras all over the building. And so he starts with his uh, twas the night before <laughs> Christmas and, you know, two by two formation. They're coming into the front and Hans gives the orders like just wound them. And uh, so they uh, Huey Lewis and his buddy start shooting through the glass and they're, they're taking out the SWAT team pretty, pretty quickly. I mean, it's it uh, takes them less than 15 seconds before they're all rolling around in shattered glass with a bunch of kneecaps that are missing. And so that sends uh, the LAPD to send in the car. Well, they knocked the lights out, too, which then. Everybody wanted to retreat. Like they had these huge spotlights. You would see it like at a movie premiere and they just lit up the building, but they immediately from a floor above or a couple floors above, just knock those out. Carl and company. And then they wanted to retreat because they have no lights, no visual. And yeah, they just got wounded. Again, didn't need to just wound them. I don't know why Hans went that route. I'm glad he did, but he has a little bit of a heart. I'm not sure where that comes from here and there, intermittently sprinkled in. But yes, they call for the car, this ridiculous RV, not ridiculous, but ridiculously tough looking RV slash, I think it's a Hummer, right? Yeah. It's like an army vehicle. Yeah. Which you wouldn't see with the police, but they, they've got it at that point. No, they send it in and it just takes forever too. Cause it must've been like blocks away, like send it in and we're all just kind of waiting for said car and it finally gets there and comes over, but it is no match for one rocket launcher. That's right. Yeah. Theo over the comms is like, Oh, the police have themselves an RV. And uh, yeah, two of the terrorists 
They're, they've got uh, the, they nail the rocket launcher. They like drill it to the floor. It's pretty impressive. So they immediately hit it once. And the thing is like engulfed in flames. Like just, it's not fully destroyed, but it is pretty bad. So then Hans says, hit it again. Hit it again. And uh, yeah, McLean jumps on the CB. He's like, you've made your point. Let him pull back. It's Hans sticking it to McLean at that point. He's like, I can do whatever I want. You have no control over the situation. And so they do. They hit it again. And then uh, McLean's got to do something. Back to my point. Just a scene ago, just wound them. But hit those guys twice with a rocket launcher, yeah. okay? I want those guys dead. It's like we were just saying. It's like once McLean kind of like voiced his displeasure, yeah. then Hans is like, no, all right, then we'll just murder everybody. Like then we're just going to burn them to a crisp. So now McLean has a new plan. And it involves a chair, an elevator shaft, and explosives. So basically he's got that C4 in his pocket and he's like, well, when's a better time to use it than now? Throw some detonators in it, straps it to a chair. And when he's doing it, he's kind of like, oh, fuck it. He doesn't quite understand what he's doing. Like he, he has a bit of an idea that, that this most likely will blow up, but he doesn't really, you know, he's out of his depth when it comes to his explosive knowledge. And he throws a computer monitor on top of it. So it's all kind of one piece, uh, grabs an ax, opens up the, the outer doors of the elevator and he throws the thing down the shaft and kaboom. Geronimo motherfucker. Geronimo, motherfucker. So good. And there is a huge explosion. It even knocks him back. Again, as you just said, he doesn't work with explosives. This is his first take. And now it's coming back up the shaft. And yeah, this is going to happen. And uh, he lives. But it, it really just knocks out like almost like a whole floor of windows inside the plaza. Yeah. Everyone outside, as Dwayne T. Robinson says, is covered in glass. <laughs> yeah, covered in glass. And Thornburg is super pleased. He's like, did you get that? Yeah. Eat your heart out, Channel 5. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and you know it's all about the story for him. He could care less how many people die. It's all about the story. We lost our camera guy. Did we get it? Okay, good. We're out. Good. So now McLean and Al talk as Robinson interrupts, because he's pissed. He thinks that McLean is a no good son of a gun who's blowing up buildings. And so they have this heated exchange. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, it's it's like, we don't need your help, you know, blah, 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 blah. But at this point, the bodies are really starting to add up. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, McLean is winning this war. Like he is, because he with that explosion, he kills two more. He kills the two guys that remain in the rocket. Uh, and basically saving anyone who's still alive in that car, he's basically saved their lives. And as he said it himself, he's feeling a little unappreciated. <laughs> and like he says, uh, well, Robinson makes it sound like he's in charge. And then, of course, McLean says, from up here, it doesn't look like you're in charge of jack shit. And he <laughs> is so right. He's not doing anything. And Al loves him. You can tell they're just forming this great bond for their yeah. love of being a cop and having the instincts and for the hatred of this jerk off Robinson who, 100%. who can't get anything right. In those moments, it becomes a cop buddy picture and they've never met. No, never met. And at this point, he doesn't even know his real name. Yeah, right. Not yet. Absolutely. So now Ellis, the douchebag, makes his move and claims he can give Hans McLean. That's right. He walks in. He delivers a fantastic speech that has lines such as, hey, you know, I watch 60 Minutes. You use a gun. I use a fountain pen. Uh, and he even calls him Hans Booby. 
I can give them to you. And you're kind of like, as a viewer, you're like, what? Him and McLean have met one time. You don't really understand what his plan is. He's been taking Coke the entire time. He's been in the hostage lobby. So he's obviously out of his mind. But he, but listen, to his point, this is what he does. He puts together million dollar deals and he feels that John McClane is going to get him killed. So if he can, you know, neutralize him, which in his mind probably just means bring him down with the rest of the hostages, they can, you know, get this thing over with. Yep. So while that's happening, we cut to McClane who's spitting out a Twinkie. And of course, Al knows the recipe because... Uh, Yellow dye number five. <laughs> he gets them a lot for his pregnant wife and himself. There's a little heartfelt exchange here. Uh, kid chat. You know, do you have kids? I have two. I have my first on the way. Well, I like that a movie like this gives us these little moments to breathe and catch our breath. Yes. Between the machine guns. Get to know these buddies. It's like a little lethal weapon here. Uh, Yeah. So they basically have a heart to heart. And, uh, you know, we get to learn more about each character, you know, through it, even though, you know, he's still calling him Roy at that point. But that's about to change. (laughs) It's all about to change. Thanks, Alice. So then Hans jumps on the old party line here. And he says what? Oh, he basically calls him John McClane. And he's like, uh, of the NYPD. And so we come to find out that Ellis has told Hans that uh, John McClane was invited to the party because he's his friend. Yep. So Holly Gennaro is still safe at this point. And uh, he needs to do what's right and tell Hans where the detonators are and come on down and give himself up so that uh, the police can swap the money, whatever money that they want that they're holding the ransom for. And get this get this evening over with because uh, Ellis has you know he's got plans he's got hot plans on this Christmas Eve. I gotta do blow with some other ladies. I gotta get That's around right. town. I ain't got no time for this. But I have to say, Brian, that Ellis overplayed his hand. One hundred percent. Didn't really realize just how ruthless Hans was gonna be. No. And so I hate to say it, but what happens? Ellis has to make his exit. Of course, John McClane doesn't give himself up and uh, pleads with Ellis to tell him that they're not friends. He's not the reason why he was invited to the party. And um, of course, that doesn't happen. And Hans pulls out the gun. All this is being played over the the radio, the CBs. And uh, Ellis is basically his last little thing is like, it's like, Hans, what am I, a method actor? This is radio, not television. Like, you know, (laughs) put away the gun. And uh, he takes a sip of his Coke and we hear a gunshot and poor Ellis uh, is no more. He exits stage right. Yep. And to be clear, a sip of his Coca-Cola. They went and got him a Coca-Cola can of Coke. And um, yeah, and that was it for Ellis. And I got to say, though, I had a moment of like, yeah, a guy this desperate and this douchey, I think he would give up Holly. That's a good point. I, you know, I, I, I guess you're totally right. Uh, it is an interesting move. Once again, Ellis has to be the center of the narrative, like the center of the world. So, of course, he comes in is like, he's my friend. I'm, you know, I'm the reason he's here. I can help you out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's his story, not Holly's in that moment. That's true. Now you can see that Hans is a little desperate. A little bit. He went from concerned to a little desperate because he's got a wild man who's very capable on the loose with something that he needs. Well, I mean, he's dealing with a, an element that was not in the, the meticulous planning. There was no uh, mention of a New York City cop <laughs> coming in and wiping out seven of his terrorists at this point. And th- the other aspect is Thornburg finds out that there's a New York City cop and the, the, the name of the cop. And uh, he sends his, uh, his lackey to go find out more information about who this guy is. Oh, yeah. 
And now Robinson argues with Al. This is a constant situation with those two. And Han calls them and gives his demands. What's your just crazy demands? Asian Dawn? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're scrambling like, oh, okay. So he wants all these prisoners freed, but this is not their agenda. They're just putting them on a wild goose chase. And again, it's playing into the plan that he wants the world to think that they are terrorists. Um, and there's that wonderful moment where Carl's like lounging in the chair next to Hans as he's delivering these demands. And he, and he goes, uh, my brother's Asian Don must be released. And <laughs> he's like, he like mouths Asian Don and Hans cuts the walkie off. He's like, I read about them in Time Magazine. <laughs> They're just having a laugh. They sound important. So funny. But McLean is not buying the story at all. He knows that this is not real. And meanwhile, Theo is one lock away. So a lot of things at play. Bam, bam, bam. Now we're back to the news station with Harvey and Gale. They're meeting with an author who wrote this book entitled... Yeah, it's, it's absurd. It's Hostage Terrorist, Terrorist Hostage. <laughs> a Study in Duality. <laughs> it's so funny. This author's talking about the Stockholm Syndrome. And I love the fact that Harvey chimes in like, yeah, that's in Sweden. And they're like, uh, Finland. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't even get that right. It's just a funny little bit. Yeah. I mean, he's only in the he's only in the movie twice, but both times he looks like a total bonehead, and it's great. Harvey. We can tell him and Thornburg aren't the closest of friends. And um now the FBI arrives. And this is also great, Brian. I mean, Johnson and Johnson. Yes, no relation. Agent Johnson, Agent Johnson. Yeah, they walk up. And the first Johnson is played by Grand L. Bush. And he was in movies like License to Kill, Colors, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. And the other Johnson, played by Robert Davi, also in License to Kill, Raw Deal, huh. and The Goonies. Goonies. Yes. yes. He plays a Fratelli brother. He definitely does. And I've actually run into him in real life at the Newport Beach Film Festival. And uh, yeah, great, great actor. And I mean, they're awesome. They are great. And, and at this point, the movie is building and building and building. The FBI shows up and they are just swinging their dicks. Like they're just like, uh, excuse me, LAPD. Uh, this is how the, these things are run. And we are in charge now. Yep. Uh, there's the great thing is that when, when uh, Dwayne T. Robinson hears that the FBI is there, Powell goes, do you want a breath mint? Because he's kind of like straightening up. Yeah. Oh, oh the FBI is here. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm in charge. Yeah, we got it from here. It's always the case. Uh, whose territory? Who's covering this? But FBI shows up and they're taking over. And they do take over and we have a lot more coming with them. Now, Hans checks on the explosives. And Brian, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the entire movie. Again, they were writing the movie as they were filming it. And McTiernan was like, there has to be a scene where these two actually meet face to face before the, the climactic scene. Like, we need them to have a scene together. And sure enough, I guess the story goes that uh, D'Souza, the writer, was really having trouble. Like, how do I do this? Like, he would know, he you know, he would know that it's the bad guys, blah, blah, blah. And uh, basically at the craft service table, Alan Rickman was doing an American accent. And D'Souza was like, that's it. McLean will come upon you checking the explosives on the, on the roof. And you'll immediately slip into your American accent and pretend that you're one of the hostages that snuck out. 
And, uh, you know, the scene basically plays out with McLean and um, Hans pretending to be a, a worker named Bill Clay. Do you think that McLean is believing him? Do we not think that he's believing him? What were your thoughts on that scene? And first of all, let's go back to Bill Clay. I think he got that name off the wall there on the other people, like very usual suspects moment. <laughs> There's like um, an index of uh, people's names on that floor, but it's Bruce Willis. You see his character look at it and he sees William Clay and Hans, who's next to it says, oh, my name is Bill Clay, which basically gives John McClane the idea of like, oh, this guy's he's either for real or he's really smart because like he glanced at it and knew, you know, he picked the name up off the thing, knowing that McLean would be asking what his name was. He didn't even really need to do that though. He could have made anything up. He's just a guy at the party. He doesn't have to be on the wall, but Hey, whatever. That's what he went for. Right. Right. Could have said, my name's Larry David. It wouldn't have mattered, whatever. But anyway, when I first saw this in the theater, I just thought, what a brilliant play. Cause we know he's busted. We know he's dead to rights. And then he shifts and acts scared. And then I'm just nervous for my hero, my McLean. Like, oh my God, he's been tricked. He's been duped. And that was a great moment for him to switch. I do believe that McLean bought it to a point. But what happens next, I have questions about. Yeah. He hands him the gun and there's no bullets in it. And, you know, it was a test. It was definitely a test. Now, uh, doing research for this pod, I have come to find out that there was some stuff that was shot when the, when the terrorists first get out of the truck, they all kind of put their arms and, uh, together in a shot and they synchronize their watches. Like a Parker Lewis can't lose kind of moment. Yes, exactly. And they all had a tag watches, a tag Hauser watches. And so apparently, uh, McLean gives him a cigarette. And at that moment, there was supposed to be an insert shot where he sees the watch and he would have noticed the watches when he was above them in the elevator. Okay. And so there's this whole thing of like time that was completely cut out. Um, and McTiernan has gone back and talked about this scene and he's like, he wanted it to kind of leave it open. Like, does McLean always know it's Hans? Does he not know until he, you know, pulls the trigger on the gun that it's Hans? Uh, and you're kind of, you're kind of left up to your own devices. There's also a thing which I found was interesting. I didn't notice until this viewing that when McLean gives the cigarettes to Hans, he takes the cigarette out and then puts the cigarette pack in his pocket because they're, they're cigarettes. It's the bad guy's cigarettes that he'd taken from, from Tony. So there's a little bit of a thing of like, well, did he notice that he kept his own cigarettes kind of thing? I don't know. You're, you're, you're kind of reaching at certain points, but at the end of the day, he gives him a gun with no bullets in it. And when he, when he goes click, that is the, the sure definition that... Well, before it goes click, even when he holds it up, it's like, okay, this yeah. guy's, he's a bad guy. But I would also ask this, he may immediately know he's not a hostage, but he's one of the bad guys. But how does he know it's Hans? He, he doesn't know it's Hans. I mean, I think going back to what you were saying about the, the, the marquee with the names on it, and that he did use a name that was on there. Hans is always thinking a few steps ahead, right? So he's thrown in this weird situation where McLean's got a gun to his head. He instantly goes into the American accent. So they walk over to this thing. He sees the index. He picks a name off of there. And he's like, that's who I'm going to be. Like, he's already two steps ahead before even McLean asks his name. Um, and I just think that, that there's an aspect of that of like, oh, okay, this guy is really smart. That McLean's like, I'm dealing, I'm not dealing with one of the henchmen. Like this, this may be Hans that I'm dealing okay. with. Okay. It's a good point. And I, I agree with that. And I, they probably much like that scene earlier with the female and the building across the way, there probably was more there, as you just said. And yeah, it could have gone a different path completely with the watches. I'm glad it went this way. It makes you think, 
But it was a great moment. The old trick gun and see how the guy reacts. Because if he's in on it, I mean, if, he, if he's a good guy and he's a hostage, I can trust him. And But yeah, you wouldn't necessarily have to give a hostage a gun right away either. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of talk of like, would you give some guy who doesn't know how to work a firearm and the no. next thing he's like, sh- he's shooting you by mistake? No, I'd have him tell me how he got there. You know, there are more people hiding. There's a lot of questions you could start asking him, but uh, I like the way it played out. And it's a great moment because I'm glad they had it in this movie because they don't really ever get to interact. And this was it. And it was well worth it. Right. Face to face. Yeah. And then right off the bat, again, you hear the ding. (laughs) Here comes our boys. (laughs) Carl and company arrive. And it's another shootout. And this one, I got to tell you, this reminds me of Predator. When they're all just shooting at trees, when they just think the Predator's coming, they are just shooting up everything in this sequence. And then Carl, of course, has one more of his hockey puck explosives. Now, before we get to that, though, we've been building up to it the whole movie. Why is he running around with no shoes? And when uh, Hans and McLean have their little get together, he notices that he doesn't have shoes because McLean delivers well. It's better than being caught with your pants down. And he he uh, tells Carl to shoot the glass. Now he said, now there's a lot of talk about this too, because he says it in German. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which would be Carl's native tongue. Right. And Carl doesn't quite understand what he's saying. So then he repeats it in English, shoot the glass, uh, basically being like, he doesn't have any shoes on. Well, he won't be able to get out of here. He'll be trapped because the glass is all on the floor. And a lot of people, even me was like, why would he not understand it when he was, when he said it in German? So I found one, I'm going to go with this. I found one theory online that, in the translation, when he, from what Alan Rickman says in German, he says, shoot the windows. Mm. And that's not what he meant. He doesn't mean shoot the windows because he means in shoot the interior panes of glass. And I guess the word that he used in German, windows do mean these exterior windows. Um, so that's what I'm going with now. I've, that's something I've learned from doing this podcast after watching the movie for 30 years. Well, that works perfect, Brian. That makes sense. Enough people I know who speak different languages sometimes are trying to explain it to someone else and there's not that word or that connecting word and they will do it in English just to do that. So I buy that. Yeah, two Germans and they're trying to make sure they're on the same page. And yeah, he looks at him like, why would I shoot those windows? What's going to be the impact of that? So I like that. I'll go with that. And then, of course, we see one more of Carl's famous hockey puck explosives. Yep. I've got to get some of these, dude. <laughs> they they do look like they'd be fun at parties. <laughs> yeah. As long as they didn't kill anybody. Nobody dying. Just have some smoke come out. But uh, now Hans grabs the detonators because, of course, McLean had to take cover and he's stepped on enough glass where we'll get to that in a minute. And Carl has an insane reaction because they had to give up the chase. And what is... Carl doing now. He's pissed. Yeah. Cause uh, Hans is like, we're back, baby. We got the detonators. We can finish our plan. But this makes Holly happy because they make it down to their floor again, because she can tell by Carl's reaction that one John McClane is still alive, bloody, but alive and well. Yes. And he, she delivers that great lines. Like only John can piss someone off. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> and she would know. Yeah. She's probably destroyed a few, a few mini bars in her own time. So now, Brian, I have to say, when we see this glass in his feet, it just makes me squeamish, man. More than anything in this whole movie. That's like, oh. 
it really is, you know, he doesn't have his shoes on for the whole movie. And you come to find out that that's kind of his kryptonite, right? The broken glass is like his kryptonite. He ha- He's kind of had a bit of the upper hand because he's been in hiding. But now everything is is back on schedule for the terrorists. Like he's really down the dumps. This is the lowest moment that we see John McClane. And, uh, <laughs> and he's literally with his fingers picking glass out of his feet. Yeah. And it is bad. It is not good. Yeah. It's not like just it'll be okay in a second. He still can't take a break. He has to put pressure back on these feet and he has no shoes to take comfort in. And he's wrapping them up. There is a ton of blood here. And I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you cut your feet, it's going to bleed. He's got to have it clot and not good. He's hobbled for the rest of the movie. No doubt. Yeah. He a hundred percent is. Yep. So now we have McLean and Al chatting. And I got to say, they're chatting a lot. These guys are becoming fast friends. And Al shares that the FBI is now in control, which I was thinking Hans also would have heard. However, just moments later, he's figured that out because him and Theo are looking at the monitors. Hans already knows this is going to happen. FBI will come. He even said it earlier. I'm just waiting for the FBI to show up. They come, take over from said cops, and he's exactly right. And it's exactly what he wanted because... They're going to shut down the power grid 10 blocks. They're shutting it down. And Dwayne T. Rob's like, this is crazy. It's Christmas Eve. You can't (laughs) shut down the power to 10 blocks. And uh, Agent Johnson, no, the other Agent Johnson, (laughs) he's like, like, lose the grid or you lose your job. So the FBI has Walt, the city worker, played by Rick Dukuman. And rest in peace. Oh, man. Really? Ah. And this great actor who I recognized right away, definitely this viewing, probably not as a youngster, but he was in Groundhog Day and The Burbs and many other movies, and he cuts the power. But he's really funny in his few scenes. You even mentioned it very early on in this podcast. He's great at it, you know? He's great. He's a comedic actor, so he literally only has one shot and a few lines, but they're hilarious. And it's the, he gets on the walkie after Agent Johnson tells him, you know, lose the grid or lose your job. And he calls he calls to the main thing. He's like, hey, this is uh, Walt down here at uh, Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza. Can you uh, shut down grid 212? And he's like, what? He's like, shut it down, shut it down now, which honestly is might be my favorite line in the whole movie. It's something that me and my college roommates would like when, shut <laughs> when it something down. was going wrong. Shut it down, shut it down now. That line must have been in Dorm Heart. <laughs> hey, you know what? Dorm Heart was a silent film. So unfortunately, oh, there was, oh. there was, no <laughs> was it text? <laughs> was it, shut it down. Yeah, it was, just, it was 16 millimeter. We didn't have any, we didn't, it was before we'd learned how to use sound yet. So okay. it, that was part of it, was telling story through visual so uh, but shut it down shut it down now would a hundred percent have been in the movie if we were allowed to use dialogue yeah uh, he does the whole line it, like halfway up the manhole you know he don't even see his body oh yeah you don't see his whole body at all no and again to to john mcturden's credit what a gr- like everything is really like uh, you can just tell that even the non-action stuff is really well choreographed yeah. like you got the fbi agents standing outside the manhole they're arguing with with robinson they're arguing with the main you know Dwalt's boss uh, he's bending down and screaming at him in the manhole and it's really well done and even right before that you know, once they cut the power, you, you see the two Johnsons kind of running down that, that little hill. They're like, they're shitting themselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. High five. Something that could have been so mundane and boring, but it's, it's so well choreographed. It is, definitely. Well, with that power shutdown, opens one vault. 
That's right. And you know, can we talk, can we talk, we haven't talked about the score. Can we talk about how they go to Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the ninth symphony? So good. It plays throughout the whole, the whole movie, but when that door opens and the light hits you. So good. You're right. Good point. I'm glad you made it because it is great. And yeah, there it is. Their plan has just worked. I mean, they've got some different nuances and they got this wild man on the loose, this cowboy, and they've lost some people, which they did not anticipate. For sure. That was a a new one for them. But the vault is open. This is the heist. And Theo goes to work. He's in there. He's Mr. Methodical, grabbing stuff just like they knew it would be. And the FBI meets their demands, these fake demands. I mean, maybe they're BSing at this point in time, but they're sharing this with Hans. And then Agent Johnson says, by the time he figures out what hit him, He'll be in a body bag. Love the Karate Kid reference. <laughs> body bag. <laughs> so yeah, Hans is like, you, you uh, deliver the helicopters. And he's like, we're sending gunships. So that's right. Yep. So McLean shares and kind of breaks down to Al. And it's a really touching scene. Yeah. Because he talks about like, he's like, listen, I'm not making it out of here. Eventually, you're going to find my wife. Don't ask me how. You'll figure it out. You'll, it, it'll make sense once this is all over. And he, and he basically apologizes. He's like, all this shit most likely wouldn't have been happening if I just would have been like upfront with my wife. You know what I'm saying? Like things would my, most likely would have worked out differently. Which kind of reminds me of the documentary when we learned that that's what inspired the screenplay adaptation of the book was a fight with a wife. Yeah, the first writer had had a fight with his wife and he was trying to unlock how do I make this novel work on screen and make you care about it. And he was like, oh, if it's all about just a marital argument that, you know, if if these people get over their egos and just talk to each other like human beings, uh, they probably wouldn't be in the mess that they're in. And here we are. But it's great to see Bruce Willis in this. He's really tearing up, genuine tears and just really well played. But then, like McLean does... He gets an idea. He gets inspiration. And although he's injured, he heads to the roof. He spots explosives. And once again, he fights whom? Before he fights him, he basically is like, what was Hans doing up on the roof? Like, why was he up there in the first place? Because, you know, at the time he says he's a hostage. He was trying to flag the police down. So he goes up there and he's thinking that he'd already used all the C4 when he blew up the two guys who were using the rocket launcher. Little did he know that the entire roof was wired to blow and that there was a shit ton of C4 up there. And right as he's about to tell his buddy, uh, Sergeant Al Powell, hey, it's a double cross. It's a double cross. Carl was waiting and now he gets his blood feud and they go at it and they punch the crap out of it. Matter of fact, that's what he says. He's like, we're both professionals. And he's like, let's put our guns down and just kill each other with our fists. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of lethal weapon. Mel Gibson fight Gary Busey. They just threw down and went old school in the yard. That great scene. with Fisticuffs. The- so good. But this is a great fight. And Carl is a bad ass. He's huge. Yeah. He's a big boy. They have this fight and it goes on. And while that's happening, Richard Thornburg interviews the McLean kids. Oh my gosh, Brian. And what transpires? Yeah, basically he uh, threatens the nanny to get in, that he's going to send INS if she doesn't open the door. And uh, basically he's telling the Lucy McLean, the little eight-year-old or four-year-old, however old she is, that uh, this might be the last chance that she gets to say goodbye to her her parents, and she's basically like, come home. And of course, we cut back to 
Holly Gennaro's office and Hans is watching this and he finally makes the connection and he lifts up the picture that Holly had slammed down. And there's the family portrait of John McClane and Holly Gennaro. And he puts it all together that, uh, oh my God, that's how he got to this party. He's married to her. And you know how he put it together? Because he's seen him. And had he not seen him, where was this story going to go? It was like, it was a great device to have them meet. So yeah, even more important that they did uh, to take it this route. But yeah, there it is. Foiled by Thornburg. Gosh. Exactly. 100% putting his wife in the crosshairs. So now the FBI are in choppers and their plan is to take them out. And maybe they'll lose 20 to 25% of the hostages. You can live with that. Yeah, we live with that. And then Yuli moves all of the hostages to the roof. So a lot at play here. They're moving upstairs to kill them. These poor hostages, I got to say. This is one Christmas party you regret attending, to say the (laughs) least. But now Carl and McLean continue to fight. And this is like the brawl of the century. They are going at it. Yep. There's hair pulling. There's... (laughs) (laughs) As <laughs> a matter of fact, that McLean gets shot in the shoulder at one point. They're going after it over and over again. And finally, McLean is able to uh, get the upper hand and he wraps a chain around old Carl's neck and throws him off the top of a staircase. And uh, we think that Carl has been done in as he's hanging there. I thought he was going to pick up the gun and fire at him. I really did. He had the gun in his hand. McLean could have easily just finished it off. But no, so he leaves him there hanging. Doesn't look very good for Carl. Doesn't look good for Carl at all. So we move on. And this next scene, hilarious. But they're in the chopper, the FBI agents. And Johnson (laughs) says, one of the Johnsons, he's like- Goonies Johnson. Yeah, Goonies Johnson. He's like, yeah, it's just like fucking Saigon. Hey, Slick. And then the other Johnson- Maybe one of the funniest lines in the whole effing movie. He says, I was in junior high, dickhead. <laughs> and it's so great because he, he's in on the joke. He's like making fun of, you know, the old man. Because you know that as when they were parting up, that's all he does is hear this oh. macho asshole talk about, talk about the glory days. He's like, oh, man, dude, I can't relate to you, old man. Yeah, I'm 15 years younger. But they're both smiling ear to ear because they're just cruising through Los Angeles in these choppers. These shots are amazing, Brian. Yeah, they're well done. Cruising right through on the street, Avenue of the Stars. In fact, as you saw in the documentary, neighbors hated this production. Yes. <laughs> We're not a fan. No. What are they making? Die Hard or whatever it's called because they have fake names when they're doing films. But uh, yeah, they hated it. It was loud. That area in Los Angeles is very uh, nice and affluent. And uh, yeah, they were not having it. But these were real choppers, real effects, none of the CG business. Yeah, these guys are loving their job, the FBI agents. So now McLean kills Yuli. And the hostages explain to McLean, no, Holly's in the vault. She's not up here with everybody else. He's like, oh my God, okay. So he's going to go get her. And then what happens? Well, basically, he knows the plan. Like, he, even though the audience isn't quite totally on board of what's happening, he knows the top of the building has been wired to blow. And he's got to get all of these people off the roof. And they see the helicopters. They don't know that those helicopters aren't there to pick them up. They don't know that they're warships. And no one there at that party, besides the one secretary, even knows who he is. So uh, he has to start shooting in the air to kind of get them to run away from him, to run back down the stairs. Of course, the FBI now 100% thinks he is a terrorist and tries to take him out. Absolutely. 
And they do. They roll up on him. He's shooting in the air to scare the hostages away. And then they're shooting at him. So, of course, he runs and jumps McLean style and gets out of the way. But this leads to maybe the greatest stunt in the movie, Brian. Yeah. So basically, after the first FBI sharpshooter misses, Goonies agent Johnson's like, I'll bag this son of a bitch or whatever he says. <laughs> McLean's got nowhere to go. He's got, he's got to get off this roof because it's going to blow. And he uh, grabs the fire hose that he finds up there, puts it around him, and is going to just basically repel off the side of the fucking building. Again, these little lines that he's only saying to himself as he gets up on the edge of the, of the building. He's like, if I get out of this, I'll never go up in a high building <laughs> the rest of my life. And of course, you know, Agent Johnson is like aiming him. He's got, his, got McLean in the crosshairs and he basically jumps. Now, before the, any of this happens, we go back down to the vault and Hans explains why he's trying to blow the roof. And the whole idea is that that's their getaway, is that they're going to blow up the roof. Everyone will think that the terrorists died up on the roof and it'll take them months to figure out that in actuality, they had escaped in an ambulance uh, out the back door, basically. And Holly's like, you guys are simply bank robbers. And he's like, I'm an exceptional thief. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. And uh, and then this leads to the iconic scene in which McLean uh, reluctantly jumps, but he's got no choice. It's going to blow, and he's about to get shot and killed. So he jumps, and this is that great thing in a movie, and they even talked about it on the dock as well, but we already knew this by seeing this movie, a scene where it's like good and then bad and then good and then bad. And uh, take us through the beats, Brian. Yeah, so it's like, you know, bad enough that he has to jump off the goddamn side of the building. So he jumps (laughs) off the building. The roof explodes. He's kind of hanging on. When the roof explodes, it takes out the helicopter. It takes out the what's holding the fire hose to the wall. It comes shooting down. So he falls down the building slightly, but it gets caught on the lip of the of the roof. So he's he's barely holding on. Can't break the glass with his foot. So he swings out, uses his gun, shoots the glass. So things are looking good. He's crushes through the glass. He's inside. And then at that very moment, the second explosion of the helicopter goes, <laughs> and then the fire hose eventually like falls down and the thing that's holding the fire hose, it falls. And then all of a sudden he's being pulled by the fire hose out the window. He's still on 30 floors up and he's desperately trying to get the, the uh, hose off of him. And he does just in time before he, <laughs> he was going to fall out the window. So yeah, it's like every second is like, he comes up with a plan and then it's like, Nope, you're not out of this yet. Nope. You're not out of this yet. Um, but it's great. It was a, finally he's out of there trying to make his way to the vault. I remember that scene in the theater, the first time I watched this movie and I was on the edge of my seat. I hadn't seen a movie that had tested that emotional roller coaster of action in me anyway. Where how what's he gonna do? Oh my gosh! And then he's shooting at the window to even get in the building. And the moment you're like, yes, oh crap! I just hadn't seen those beats before, <laughs> and it was just a marvel. Like I, I was like just like laughing, but nervously, just a kid, just in awe. Of it, but incredible execution on McTiernan and of course Bruce yeah. Willis and stunt crew, the whole works, everybody. It's believable. And finally, there's a little bit of a reprieve because he gets the damn thing off and he's like, oh my gosh, whatever he says after that, I forgot. But another one of classic <laughs> McLean lines. And now, Brian, I got to say, Johnson and Johnson didn't make it. They didn't make it. No. Yeah. McLean makes his way to the lobby, the helicopter, it blows up and then blows. <laughs> 
<laughs> blows blows McLean into like the the little like water uh, decoration that they <laughs> in the lobby. And of course, we we cut down to Dwayne T. Robinson. He's like, I guess we're going to need two new FBI guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, he's uh, we're gonna need some more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> he's just like, oh well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that yeah. happening. So funny. And yeah, wherever McLean gets blown into, it's where the party was, but it looks almost like a war movie. Like you know, he drops in this water and he looks up, it's like, oh my that was on purpose, very intentional. Yeah. I mean, he's in a war zone. I mean, there's, yeah. And they had, they'd rigged the elevators, like an elevator opens and explodes. Like, he's like, Jesus Christ. Like there's trees falling. Like there's Christmas trees that are falling down. Like the whole building is just coming down. And let's talk about how he looks at this point. Oh. He's literally just wearing pants because uh, he, he's taken off his wife beater. He's mm-hmm. wrapped it around his, his, uh, his poor foot. And he's, he's dragging this bloody foot around. He's disgusting. He's got blood all over. I mean, he's just been beat the shit up. It's true. Meanwhile, in the bowels of Nakatomi Plaza, we see Argyle. He's back. Finally. What's he doing down there? He's back. And he oversees the getaway ambulance come out of the back of the Pacific Courier truck. And now we see McLean. And Brian, he's got literally two bullets left. Yeah. That's all he's got. A lot of bullets been going off. And now Argyle comes through. Yeah. So he basically puts it together that uh, these guys were going to escape pretending to be like paramedics. And uh, he's like, I'm putting it into this. So he drives the limo into the side of the ambulance and jumps out and punches out Theo, who was driving it. KO'd Theo. KO'd him. Yeah, seriously. And uh, yeah, shakes his hand. Like he hurt his hand on the punch. Yeah. yeah Argyle has, he, he did his part. He saved the day. Now I have the answer to my question about Argyle's role. It was to do this and befriend McLean, of course. But this was a big thing. He spotted it. Knocked it out. They were trying to pull a cannonball run with the ambulance getaway. (laughs) That's a good one. Cannonball run, yeah. And again, going back to D'Souza, this is what they wrote. That's why earlier when you see the terrorists get out of the truck, there's no ambulance in the back of the truck because they hadn't written it yet. I guess he'd written a TV movie earlier in his career, and this was like something that he had come up with that uh, some mad bomber was going to escape pretending to be a doctor or something, or a first responder. And so they were like, well, let's just steal that idea. And so they did. That's a good one. (laughs) We also saw the ambulance get away in the movie Heat, the incredible Michael Mann movie. Oh, later. Sure, of course. Yeah. Now there's a showdown with McLean. Our two cowboys. And it's Hans grabs Holly. And McLean drops his gun. And then Hans has a bad reference to High Noon, the 1952 movie. He mentions John Wayne, but actually it was Gary Cooper with Grace Kelly. And Brian, I love that he quotes McLean. Yeah, he quotes him back. He's like, what did you say? And he says it in that really oh. upper crust. He's like, yippee ki motherfucker. Like, he doesn't even say it. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> Which is like the whole point. Like there's this whole like classes thing in the movie, like the blue collar versus the upper crust Englishman, uh, even though he's German. And of course, to the, to the, uh, in the right of him is the Huey Lewis uh, terrorist. So it's actually two against one. How many bullets does he have again? He's only got two bullets. Only got two bullets. 
And so we quickly find that uh, after he quotes McLean back to him, McLean starts saying, you know, you would have made a pretty good cowboy yourself. And he starts laughing <laughs> and uh, everyone around the room, it's kind of like everyone kind of takes a breather. And even Holly McLean is like, what's, what's happening here? And at that moment, the camera backs up and we see that uh, John has taped his pistol to his back because he doesn't, you know, wearing a shirt and he immediately draws and it's like the old West. He draws, shoots Hans in the shoulder and then turns and shoots old Huey Lewis in the head right between the eyes. And, uh, <laughs> he goes happy trails, Hans. And he blows whew, his pistola. It's every Western we've ever seen, but it's not over yet. Just when you think it's over, not over. Huey Lewis, it's over for him. He's done. That was between the eyes. But uh, old old Hans, when he uh, when he shot Hans in the chest, he uh, the bullet went through him and broke the glass behind him. And of course, he falls out the window, but he's holding on to old Holly. Yes, he is. And he's got her by the wrist. And in fact, he's got her by the Rolex watch that the Nakatomi Corporation had given her as a Christmas gift. So, of course, uh, McLean runs over there, grabs his wife, and they're struggling. And all in beautiful slow motion, Hans Gruber brings up his gun, is going to try to shoot them before he falls to his death. But McLean is able to undo the clasp on the Rolex. And Saranara, there goes Hans Gruber as he falls to it. And a beautiful shot, by the way. They did a very good job. Most of those types of uh, scenes are so cheesy, but this was believable. But you saw the documentary, you could see how they shot it. It, it looks really cool and kind of spooky and, and real. Not like, oh, that's totally fake. It was really cool. You know, Alan Rickman, uh, it was <laughs> it was the last shot he had in the film. He fell, it's really him. He fell 40 feet into like a big, you know, a mat and the stunt guy who had the release on the rope that was holding him told him, hey, we're going to count to three. And when we get to three, we'll release it. But in reality, they released it on one. So when Jerks. you see that fear in his face, <laughs> yeah. it's real because he wasn't expected to be dropped at that moment. That's terrifying. So now going back to the watch, and this is why people are like, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And here is the moment that we say <laughs> yes. And here's the proof in the pudding right here. So we have this corporation. It's all materialism. It's all, you know, and that, that, that's, a, that's a main trope without Christmas movies is, oh, we're, you know, it's, a, it's all about materialism. It's all about presents, all about getting, getting, getting. That's what that watch represents, right? It represents that materialism. But as soon as they can click it off, she's free of it and she mm. comes back up and they are family. And that's what Christmas really is about. Oh, there it is. It's not about terrorists no. or, or materialism or Rolex watches. It's about kissing your husband who's covered in blood. <laughs> it's about family. I agree. I mean, listen, I'm easy to please. This movie took place on Christmas Eve. Therefore, it is a Christmas movie. But that's just me. But I, I agree with you. If you need the extra point, that's a good one. And yeah, materialism be damned to watch the whole bit. I love the fact that they mentioned it earlier, this Rolex watch that John didn't even want to see, and he couldn't wait to get that damn thing off of her wrist. So yeah, it's perfect. Very poetic. And uh, and that's the end of Gruber and the end of all the bad guys. So we think. So we think. But before we get to that, Dwayne T. Robinson gets one more little punchline in. Of course. As Gruber's, as Gruber's falling to his death, he's like, I hope that's not a hostage. <laughs> so good. I hope that's not a hostage. Yeah, he's just on the sidelines giving color commentary now. He really <laughs> is at this point. The hostages are all out. Medics are everywhere. And Brian 
Al spots McLean. Yeah, and you know what? It's kind of like... (laughs) It's like the end of Sleepless in Seattle, right? Totally. They don't even have to speak to each other. No. They just look at each other and like, oh, my love. Yeah. <laughs> I felt that. Family, Christmas, let's, we're all getting together. And so they go over and they embrace and they have their moment. I think they lived happily ever after. Oh, I think they did too. Holly's just a third wheel at this point in time. She's a third. Get out of the way. But then, but then, you know, right at that moment, right when they're embracing, having their moment, I feel like there should have been another like elevator ding. Cause all of a sudden there's Carl and he ain't dead. He looks dead, but he ain't dead. It's like Jason from Friday the 13th. Yes. It's very eighties and totally not really needed, but it's fun. His face is burnt. And he's come out and somehow he's made it past a lot of people. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. so there's that. And he's got his gun and he looks like a mess and he pulls his gun out. But then what happens? The unexpected Al happens. Powell, who we've, you know, earlier found out doesn't draw his gun anymore because he unfortunately had killed a kid who had a ray gun who looked real enough. Yeah. And he draws his gun and uh, puts Carl out of his misery for once and for all. He pulled his gun and saved the day as uh, McLean and Holly hit the deck. And it wasn't just one shot. He shot him like four or five times. In true <laughs> LAPD fashion. He, he put the guy down. Yeah. He hadn't pulled his gun out since the incident, the unfortunate incident, which he had shared earlier, which we didn't really talk about, but you just mentioned. He had shot a kid by mistake. Thought he had a real gun. So he was on desk duty, was afraid to pull his gun, but pulls it out, saves the day because McLean just takes cover with Holly. He no longer has a weapon. He has no bullets left, as we know. He's a sitting duck, yep. And yeah, probably didn't need that moment, but it was nice to see Al, you know, be triumphant. He- he overcome his fear. He can kill again. Yeah, he can. It sets it up for the buddy picture that should have happened. That never happened. You're totally correct. That should have been Die Hard too, for Christ's sakes. But anyway, uh, that happened. And now Argyle bust out of the garage, which makes me ask, couldn't he have done that before? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> could have done that earlier. But it's okay. Good point. Hey, you know what? It's all right. He busts out, comes rolling up, and then, yes, Richard Thornburg comes in for a quick interview, only to be surprised by Holly. As a matter of fact, John kind of like looks like he's about to punch the guy out, and Holly just pops him. She does. Doesn't see it coming. And then he gets to re-deliver the line he gave earlier when the floor exploded. He's like, did you get that? Great line. Very self-deprecating and it works. Yeah. And I think that makes for better TV. When he runs that, him getting slugged by Holly, you know, here's the hero's wife. And yeah, that, that's even better. So uh, he got what he wants. And I'm sure he went on to become a huge mogul in the space by now. He's a brand. <laughs> totally. And then Argyle takes the couple home and uh, Let It Snow plays again, a different version. He's like, if this is what they have in store for Christmas, I can't just wait to see what New Year's is like. Yeah. Yeah. And it kicks in, Let It Snow. And the whole time while they're out there, there, there's all these different little things. Like, you know, they get out of the building and we have the meeting of Al Powell. We have the killing of Carl. At one point, uh, Dwayne T. Robinson comes up. He's like going to put McLean in handcuffs, but then Carl starts shooting, shooting at Powell and all this stuff. And he got Thornburg. The whole time, all, you, know, you have all these little things, and they button up everything. They really do button up every little uh, story that has arisen, which is nice. And the whole time, paper is coming down because it doesn't snow in L.A. So it's like all this paper from the building that is on fire from all the different explosions. I thought it was a really great touch, another, another little aspect that uh, the set designers threw in there that really worked. And I will say this, though. 
We left one storyline open. What do you think happened to Theo? Well, he got punched out. I know. They caught him. They caught him. Okay. So assuming he's There's caught. actually two terrorists that, that survived. There's Theo who gets punched out and you see him like hit the deck and his glasses fall off. And there's a, there was another terrorist when McLean comes down, he's only got two bullets. There's actually three terrorists there. And one is running with a bunch of Barabons in his hand and Bruce Willis like hits him with the butt of the machine gun. And that's how he kind of announces to Hans and Huey Lewis that he's arrived yeah. and that guy never dies. So there's actually two terrorists that actually lived through the, uh, through the Nakatomi Plaza incident. So how long do you think they were in prison? Assuming they're both caught. Well, that's a good question. Probably for the rest of their lives, right? <laughs> Probably still there. <laughs> but Theo's smart. I thought if he'd come to, I mean, I know he's knocked out Cole, but it took them a while to get down to him. And there's a chance. I mean, there's a chance for Theo. There's a chance that he could have. I mean, hell, there's a chance the guy who got, who got punched out got another two. I mean, Carl almost walked away. <laughs> walked away with a machine gun in his hand. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah that's what I'm saying. Dwayne T. Robinson, not too smart. No. So that is it. An incredible movie. Thank you, John McTiernan. And everyone else who produced it, who acted in it, who worked on it, who promoted it. An incredible, incredible movie, and it really holds the standard for action movies. 100%. I mean, there's diehard everything after this point. They cut this movie up and rehashed it to us. They're still doing it. I feel like a diehard in the White House. You know, they're still, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're still doing it. So they've never garnered the magic of the first one. Like it's, no, it was all perfect. It, it just worked out. They picked the right building. They picked the right casting. You know, everyone in town said no to it. So it had to be Bruce Willis and he was the perfect person for it. Alan Rickman's first movie. He's the perfect. I mean, he's up there with like Darth Vader. Like he's that good of a bad guy. So um, it's one of my all time favorite films. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast and talk about it, Jason. I truly appreciate it. My pleasure. I needed to have a diehard expert to go on this road with me on this journey. (laughs) And uh, you are the guy. I got a little quick trivia here. Despite being the first movie in a franchise that made Bruce Willis a megastar, Die Hard is actually a sequel. The original film, The Detective, was based on the novel of the same name by Roderick Thorpe. Detective Joe Leland, played by Frank Sinatra, was one of the first movies of the late 60s and early 70s that featured a more realistic approach to police work. Now, because of his contract for this film, Sinatra was actually offered the chance to star in Nothing Lasts Forever, also written by Thorpe, and later became Die Hard. Now, thankfully, the 73-year-old Sinatra passed. (laughs) That would have been a different movie altogether. A very, very different movie. Now, in the spring of 1987, producer Joel Silver and director John McTiernan attended a performance of the play Dangerous Liaisons, in which Alan Rickman played the evil Victomi de Vaumont. And in doing so, they immediately recognized that they had their Hans Gruber. And Brian, how right they were. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously this is a star-making vehicle for Bruce Willis, but this was a career-making vehicle for uh, Alan Rickman. Like he, he's a character actor to the end, but he's in so much stuff. I mean, it was an easy transition, and he also played the bad guy. Like he said, he was in the Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner that came out the next year. Like he, he redid this character a few times, and then finally he, you know, he was really known as like, oh, this guy can play anything. I think he was in like a movie with Tom Selleck, Quigley Down Under. Wasn't he the bad guy in that? Yeah, he was. 
was the bad guy in that too. You're totally right. Yeah, they're all just diehard ripoffs. They're just like, oh, we need a smart bad guy. But, you know, again, it, it has to be on the page as well. Yeah. And it's definitely on the page in Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Couple more. As in the film, Reginald Vell Johnson didn't meet Bruce Willis until the end of the movie. Didn't know that. Yeah, I really liked it. Those were genuine looks, genuine smiles, genuine love. I like that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Realism, if you will. And the last thing I have, the line, yippee ki motherfucker, is actually used in all five Die Hard movies. Ah, uh, is that right? I didn't know I, that. I think I knew that. And it seems appropriate, right? It does. Now, it would not work if it was I'll be back in all the Terminator movies. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Well, they did something different. Like, they have other characters say it, but you're totally right. Yippee-ki-yay, beep, beep, I think even shows up in the uh, car battery commercial. Does it? Oh, I haven't seen that one. That's great. So, that's all I got. And it was just such a pleasure. Anything else you want to add before we sign off? No, man. I'm just, again, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. I have been looking forward to this all week when you asked me. I was like, oh, finally. Yes, I'm gonna, <laughs> we're going to sharpen some teeth on Die Hard. This is great. And I got to tell you, man, like I, really watching it as closely as I did, I actually learned a few things that I didn't, uh, didn't even know before. So there you go. Well, thank you so much for listening. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Let's Talk Movies or check out our other shows at JustCuriousMedia.com. So without further ado, please enjoy Die Hard.